Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Directors Club. I'm your host, Jim Laskowski, but oh, oh, this is not just any plain old episode. This is the big one. This is the one that I think gets the most attention and emails and downloads every year. It is the year-end spectacular where my guests and I reveal films that we think are worth your time from this past year. Probably going to have a conversation or two along the way. I could not do it alone. That would be weird if I did. So I reached out and asked for help. But this time, you know, uh, we, I, had to, I had to get two guests. You know, we planned on three, and it's totally cool that, uh, you know, Bill Ackerman needed time to work on other great projects of his own. We totally respect that decision. He will be back here on the show again in the near future. I have no doubt of that. Let's introduce our guest. First of all, a, ma- a man who has left Letterboxd. So I have no idea what he thinks about anything anymore. My friend, my former co-host and current host of Tracks of the Dam. Welcome back, Patrick Rapole. Hey, you don't got to worry about that. You just got to assume that if it has um, Helena Douglas in it, then I'm giving it a thumbs up. Oh. And that's, that's basically my scale. Does this movie have Ileana Douglas? You know, Goodfellas, thumbs up. Cape Fear, thumbs up. Uh, that uh, one episode of uh, Entourage, <laughs> thumbs up. Um, to Die For? To Die For. Big thumbs up to Ileana Douglas and To Die For. Yeah. Yeah. I have no complaints about that. Mm-hmm. And also, our other guest today was kind enough to take over this show for a few years, and I'm still very grateful for his hard work and continued dedication to cinema attendance in general. <laughs> Welcome back. Another former co-host, Brad Strauss. Thank you. Thank you. It says happy new year, guys. It's great to be talking to you again. And uh, unlike uh, opposite of Patrick, I now can only be found on letterbox. Ah. Oh, at both sides of the spectrum. Hmm. Interesting. I'm glad that you finally decided to forego the physical reality <laughs> and upload your consciousness onto the web uh, full time. It's it was it's the choice we've all expected from you for a while, and it's well, finally I mean, come true. It's not real unless it's online, right? That's true. That's true. Yeah, that's also exactly what Scarlett Johansson does in Lucy. I think she <laughs> uploads her consciousness onto. A hard drive or something. Yeah. So then I would not be the first person to make the joke that Lucy is the prequel to her. <laughs> I'd like to see some fan fiction tying the two. That would be pretty cool. Seems like it wouldn't be too hard to do. Yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. And now the big news for all you loyal listeners who have downloaded this episode within the week of it being released. I have in my possession four bubble envelopes that I'm ready to fill up. No, I'm not just sending you the envelopes empty for you to fill up. I'm going to fill them up with two Blu-rays of films from 2021. One of these Blu-rays is courtesy of Lionsgate and a very kind publicist who is, I couldn't believe it. He sent them my way and said, here, give them away on your show. So I want you, the listener, 
to start off 2022 with something in your mailbox, all you have to do right now is send me an email to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com with your name, address, your favorite film of 2021 before January 11th at midnight, and you'll be entered to win a copy of this Blu-ray and another 2021 title. So you're getting two in your mail. So I'm basically just going to number all the emails as they come in, put them in a random number generator. And if you're selected, I'm going to be mailing out something very cool to you in the near future. So I just have to receive your email by January 11th at midnight in order for you to be entered into this wonderful contest. So, yeah, that's exciting, huh? <laughs> and I like that you're leaving what title it is a mystery because you can't reveal that you're the only person who has a Blu-ray copy of Memoria. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Although that's one you should likely try your best to see on the big screen. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I I did watch it at one point in my home, uh, and my cat hopped up on my lap at a very uh, specific point in the movie. So I was like, "Damn it! I'm trying to focus on this amazing film." I'm gonna have a lot to say about Memoria as we uh, go on. Okay, excellent, excellent. Well, we'll, we'll get to it. I'm sure. I I didn't get a chance to watch it a second time, and I need to. But I'm also kind of. One of those people are like, hmm, well, things die down a bit. I want to go back and see it on the big screen in April. Uh, but yeah, as always, before we celebrate our, our picks and the categories and all that fun stuff, what did you think about this year in cinema? Patrick, let's start with you. What, In general, how do you feel about the state of things in, uh, as we enter 2022 now? So I'm I'm very cynical and I, I kind of believe that film as an art form is kind of dead, which isn't to say that like no great movies will come out anymore. Like there will continue to be great movies that come out for years and years to come. But for me, um, cinema is something that like it needs a movie theater to exist. And I don't have faith that movie theaters will continue to exist for too much longer. Um, and the thing about that is once... Uh, it is understood that films are going to be watched at people's homes or on their laptops or whatever. Then all of a sudden people are like, well, this is something that is meant to be consumed while someone has their phone out. Or this is something that you don't really got to think too hard about the aesthetics because half the people are going to have the true motion, uh, like extra frames on and the other half have like dynamic contrast and like it does like the, you know, visual presentation, just make it look like television because like, uh, we don't have control over how it actually looks on the other side. Um, and I think once you get to that, then that's when it suddenly stops being films and starts being content. And I think that's kind of what we already saw from 2021 when Warner Brothers put all their stuff on HBO was like, uh, it just kind of turned all of the movies into content. Um, Disney plus certainly does the same thing. And so for me, I, I just, I don't have a lot of faith in, the medium as a thing that grows and evolves. And, um, you know, I, I think of it now more like, uh, like, uh, like, like it's, it's like cocaine becoming crack where it's like, it's, it's cheaper now. And it's, you know, a lot, you know, you, you get a much bigger high from it real quick, but I don't know if you can say that crack is higher quality than cocaine. 
Um, and for me, I prefer my cinema to be cocaine, um, uh, even though it, you know, it costs a little more, or whatever, which is a terrible metaphor, but that's where I landed. Um, so anyway, I, I put together a list of my top 10 films of 2021, but I didn't particularly care much about any of them, really. Um, not in the way I have in the past. So I also put together my top 10 new watches, first time uh, viewings uh, films of the year, because for me, there's still an endless uh, past that cinema has. And as long as I can keep seeing films and as long as places like Music Box and Gene Siskel Film Center keep showing film prints and stuff like that, um, and I can keep discovering you know, new artists and stuff uh, that existed back when film was a, like a thriving art form, uh, I'll be cool. I'll be good. So that's kind of where I landed. That makes complete sense to me. And I kind of agree with you more than ever. You used, used to be a little bit more on the positive side of like, well, there's going to always be great art every year. And, and and honestly, that's true. There usually is, but I don't know, n- not to the level of uh, a lot of older films and things that you can find on the Criterion channel and whatnot. You know, I think all this stuff that I've seen, mostly older older films, trying to raise the bar. <laughs> and we'll get to, you know, even when my, some of my favorite filmmakers, their own filmographies from the past have raised the bar to where I'm like, mm, yeah, that Tarantino movie, that most recent one, it was pretty good. But <laughs> I, I, I don't know. For me personally... Maybe I'm having these weird muted responses to new films lately for a reason. I don't know. Brad, what do you think in general about this year on and I am, I am also, about movies in general? Yeah, I'm also concerned in in the same way you guys are expressing. I'm a little bit higher on this year's movies. I do feel like um like my top 10 are movies that I'm pretty feel pretty strongly about getting behind, mm-hmm. but at the same time uh even even just how they were watched i literally didn't see a new 2021 movie until the year was half over and the vast majority of them i've seen in the past few months so you know we're getting these uh you know there's always been seasons but the seasons now seem just so rigid it's like nothing happens till summer then all your big blockbusters come out and then the 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 good quality stuff you gotta wait uh, till October, and you know there's exceptions, but that seems to be the pattern that that keeps happening. And now that streaming is going to be dominating things, I do wonder where what's going to happen to you know there, there there's two types of movies I think are safe. You're going to have there's always going to be the blockbusters. They're going to be around. They're going to be multiplexes. Uh, you know, yay that. But also, there's still going to be the art house films uh, in certain communities because we here in Chicago, we've got the Music Box, we've got the Siskel. Other big cities have that. I wish every place had that. But kind of just the the mid range quality movie for non cinephile adults. That's where's where's the theater that's going to play that in a few years i wonder if it's going to end up being kind of like like jazz music where mm-hmm. where like you can find it you could go see a great a great jazz show and buy great jazz albums but they're not part of the culture they're not going to 
be there. You're going to have to search them out. And and uh, what my worry is is that's where we're heading heading to with the uh, quality films. Oh no! It seems plausible. I, I mean, uh, gosh, we so we had a a cocaine metaphor and now a jazz music metaphor. Which what do you think I should lean towards? Something with food, perhaps? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm having trouble now. <laughs> but I agree. That's the thing. In general, I feel <sighs> I feel uncertainty about how things are in the world in general. But you know, when it comes to uh, films and 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 even seeing new films, I kind of go, hmm. I'm, I am not like. Oh my God. Oh, I was, you know, I, I, I go back to even a time when I saw something like tree of life in the theater and I just kind of went, Oh my God, movies, you know? (laughs) And that's definitely happened. I'd say once or twice every year since then, maybe even a few more times in some years, but you know, and, and, and this should just come as no surprise to anyone with a pulse, but it's just been a weird year. It's been a weird two years. Uh, for me personally, this is one of the most difficult ones I've had in about 20 years. You know, there's just a lot happening personally that I don't know, going to a movie is supposed to be this amazing, great escape. And yet I would often walk out of a theater going, Oh yeah, but still life kind of sucks right now. (laughs) So I couldn't always get swept up in the emotion of, of great art in the way that I've had in the past. So, you know, even when I, when I went to see the matrix resurrections, I just kept kind of kept going, is it me? Like, am I just not connecting with movies in the way that I used to for, you know, possibly an emotional reason. And that's that, but I, I, I've been saying this for a little bit here. I think what's gotten lost in criticism is nuance (laughs) because some of the reactions that people are having this year to films like licorice pizza or the matrix resurrections, or, uh, I mean, there's just, uh, I I'm not on that same wavelength of going, this is the worst thing ever because it has this thing, you know, and I don't know. It's just, I, I don't want to be too much of a downer when expressing myself, <laughs> especially in the world of Twitter. There's just a lack of, of nuance people aren't considering different perspectives and other interpretations. People just immediately jump to you're wrong and I'm right a lot. It just felt like it was, that was amplified for me. That seems like Twitter and the like just operates. It's kind of like this whole, um, this whole online thing has, it's like a Pandora's box situation. Yes. We have access to, everyone and everyone's opinions and to a platform for our own. But, you know, there's just a lot of people out there who thrive on, thrive on that negativity. And, uh, and I hope like, you know, shows like yours can, you know, bring that nuance. I hope so. I just don't get the reactionary, like, Oh God, you know, and, you know, kind of just attacking a lot, you know, attacking people's, opinions and perspectives but i am not also not i don't want to negate some experiences that people have to to art because they're entitled to that experience because that's what they had but i think it's just the way they choose to express it 
especially in a place like Twitter. Uh, it's just not, I, I don't connect with that anymore to where there are moments where I go, yeah, maybe Patrick was right about social media. <laughs> well, it's just, it's just, it doesn't, it's not built on nuance. It's built on engagement and engagement is this person is wrong. I got to tell them, or finally this person is sticking it to the people who are wrong and I got to amplify them. Like that's, that is how it builds out is, um, and on pretty much all social media, you know, when, when I was on Letterboxd, it wasn't the three star thought out. I'm ambivalent. I like this part. I didn't like this part. You know, as elegant as my writing got, which wasn't very um, like reviews that got the most likes. It was when I would say something um, very pithy and uh, very snarky um, and, you know, it would just be this like easily digestible little thing. As I'm going, yes, like agree. And it's just that's that's what social media is. um, And that's what it's going to continue to do. And, you know, uh, I think. Uh, any talking points about like, oh, this country is becoming divided or whatever it are. I think that is always a misnomer because there was never a point where the country was united in like our entire history. Um, and there's never been a point where uh, where the sort of systems and forces that, uh, you know, um, separate people into class and you know, and, and separate people in terms of their access to things and stuff like that. Like none of that has ever been equal or fair and no one, we have never been united in anything. Um, so I don't want to like buy into that or whatever, but it does, uh, make it appear to be, uh, more divided in a way that makes you sort of impulsively want to like join team matrix resurrections is the greatest movie ever slash join team matrix resurrections is the worst movie ever. Um, yeah, that's just, and and I recommend uh, deleting your letterbox, sending them an email, by the way, because they will maintain a backup of everything you've ever written for them until you expressly email them and say, hey, delete that. Um, and then they delete it. Um, and then you were like, well, I did download all everything I ever wrote in this weird format that is absolutely unreadable. <laughs> and, and basically, it's the same of it not existing. Um, and then once you do that, then you can just, you know, watch whatever and uh, just uh, think your thoughts. And uh, don't talk to people. That's the other thing. Just really don't don't talk to other people. It's working out great for me. Well, I, I do like listening to other people, <laughs> you know, and I do. I, I love the art of conversation. I certainly am grateful for podcasts and film podcasting in general. You know, there are definite instances where I listen to something like, well, I don't know why they, they're saying it like that or but. I don't know. I'm, I'm forgiving in that regard. I, I do get frustrated sometimes myself with certain opinions and certain takes on things. Uh, but yeah, no, at this point I, I do, I do often sit back and wonder is this, you know, am I a masochist, you know, for staying on Twitter and not necessarily engaging the way a lot of people do. It's more of just like, I'm using it to support good people. I rather would, create positive energy and retweet people that I think are smart or interesting or host good podcasts or written a great piece, you know, as opposed to like, Oh, let me just tell you what I think of everything. Although that's exactly what we're going to do today. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for the both of you. uh, Cause I I know this is always a treat. I know this is always fun for me. Um, Even when the years are kind of shaky, you know, I, this is a, this is something that I, I tend to say, hey, well, I do like structure 
I'm a big fan of uh, the syllabi, even though that's gone now, now that I'm no longer in grad school. I think I just like the idea of like, this is what I have to expect. This is what I have to look forward to. This is what I have to prepare for. So here we go. Let's do this. Dun, We're going to start dun. off with the categories. I don't, did we ever like call this anything? I don't know. Superlatives maybe that would be, that's what it would be in a yearbook. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if we just like a segment name. I don't think we ever had it really. It's just like, yeah. Hey, our awards, the director's club awards ceremony thing. Sure. <laughs> uh, let's start off with hardest. You laughed. Um. Yeah, we'll just we'll just continue this the the, uh, the way things started out. Patrick, what did you what, what what did you choose for hardest you laughed? Um, the actual answer is a moment from Bad Trip, uh, the uh, Eric Andre, Lil Ray Howry um, movie. But the problem is, I can't. I saw it too long ago, and I can't remember specifically which moment it was that killed me. So instead, I'm going to shout out uh, from Fear Street, 1994. Um, there's a moment where a character gets killed with a deli slicer that is so over the top and so violent and so mean spirited in a way that totally does not fit the movie at all that I could not stop laughing. It was so great. And that's a, it's a bad movie, but that is a, just an absolutely spectacular moment. So the deli slicer kill in uh, Fear Street 1994. Oh, wow. What a moment. You told me to see that. And then I saw it. I was like, oh, yeah, that's 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 something <laughs> special right there. Oh, Brad. And one thing I've already noticed is there's been a real dearth of good comedies in the last few years, at least for me. Mm. So I, uh, I ended up with a, a movie that's very funny, but comes by it uh, very differently. It's uh, Sean Baker's Red Rocket. Oh. And uh, basically it's about a, a porn star coming back to his uh, hometown uh, attempting many schemes and getting into much trouble. And at one point uh, he realizes he has to get out of Dodge really quick and he's got no time. So we got a quick cut to him running down the street, buck naked, dick flopping around in full panic. And just the way that was executed uh, was funny to me. That is a movie with some very funny moments. That's got to be the, yeah, the biggest laugh, I would say, as well. And there are so many moments in Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Uh, I, I couldn't simply just single one out. You know, there's, I laugh pretty consistently. That that sense of humor is totally my jam. It could have been, that's a movie that David Wayne probably could have made. Uh, but the hardest I laughed was that a single scene performance by character actor Harriet Sansom Harris playing a talent agent in Licorice Pizza. And that entire performance floored me. I was like, okay, yeah, everybody's pretty great in this movie overall, for sure. <laughs> but she has one scene that uh, I, I was kind of embarrassed that I laughed as hard as I did. And I kind of wanted more of that level of humor in the film, although I know it's it would have been kind of jarring, <laughs> but it's just she's so insanely expressive in the way she delivers the lines and the way she uses body language and her face. It's just oh, it's it's sublime that moment uh, for sure. 
Uh, but we'll we'll talk more about that movie later. That's it for me. Um, yeah, best use of a song. This is another tough one. There's a few for of me. Um, I was not really a big fan of Bergman Island. I was just sort of uh, found it kind of middling or whatever. But I really did like the moment with the winner takes it all. I thought it was very sort of wry and ironic that in a movie that's constantly. Uh, talking about and referencing Ingmar Bergman, the biggest emotional catharsis comes from a different Swedish import, ABBA. Um, so that was my that was my favorite use of the song. Yeah, no, that's a great pick. That's probably my favorite mo- moment in the whole movie, and I did like that movie a lot. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, Brad? There were a lot of musicals this year, and I decided mm-hmm. not to choose any of those, but to stick with the traditional soundtrack song. But luckily, there's a movie that I think compiled one of the the best film soundtracks I've ever heard, and that's Last Night in Soho, which is filled with uh, mid-60s gems, uh, things like uh, The Kinks' Starstruck, um, Batula Clark's Downtown, Got My Mind Set on You, Land of a Thousand Dances. Each song used absolutely perfectly to evoke the the time and place. So like whatever my choice is, it's from last night in Soho. Yeah. Even the opening credits, is it a world without love? Is that the song? Yeah, they do that one too. It's like just endless gems from that thing. As I'm watching those opening credits, I'm like, all right, Edgar Wright, make a musical. It's time. <laughs> it really is. Uh, I'm tempted to go with something from Summer of Soul, but <laughs> anytime anyone performs in that song and then that entire documentary, it's a great use of any music of any kind. I hate to be predictable by going with my favorite director, but he chose a Wings song called Let Me Roll It in such a sublime way that I just wanted the whole song to play and have the scene go even longer. Uh, yeah, chef's kiss for that choice, Paul Thomas Anderson. But I, I, I do feel strongly about uh, Winner Takes All and uh, oh, that song, um, All I Need is a Miracle by Mike and the Mechanics from Spencer. That's another nice moment. Oh, yeah. That's funny. I didn't see Licorice Pizza, but I have actually been listening to Let Me Roll It for a long time. Or like I've been listening to it uh, again and again recently, and I've been like picturing different movie scenes you could set to it. So it's funny that that <laughs> that, ha- that is the same year that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson went and did it. I too smiled when that happened in, in the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a great soundtrack. There are some song. Uh, I was surprised there are some songs that are on the soundtrack. They're just kind of like throwaway moments in the movie, like. You put Gordon Lightfoot's If You Could Read My Mind on the soundtrack listing. See, that's the thing, too. There's a lot of things like the trailer and that's reading the soundtrack that primed me for like, oh, my God, how's he going to use this song? Or, oh, my God, how's that scene going to play out in a certain context? Eh, it didn't always happen. Anyway, uh, best line of dialogue, Patrick. Um, I think for me, it's in Shiva Baby. Uh, when the main character's parents are sort of telling her, well, you know, feminism isn't exactly uh, a profession that makes a lot of money. And she said, it's not a profession, it's a lens. Um, <laughs> for some reason, that just really cracked me up. That's great. That's a Yeah, I bet if I watch that movie a second time, it'll go even higher in my mind. But I certainly did 
like that film a lot and a lot of the dialogue is great brad what what'd you pick moria is a film that uses a lot of silence but there is an extended uh, dialogue sequence as you approach the end where Tilda Swinton meets up with this uh, mystic farmer of mysterious origins. And they just start talking about the most fascinating things. And he's basically talking about how uh, his senses are so overwhelmed by the environment around him, by the the trees, by the rocks, by everything that he he doesn't need to seek out any new experiences because they would just be too much for him. And I don't I don't have the exact wording of it, but it just really struck home kind of just the way he put that. Yeah. That's that's definitely memorable. And I need to see that whole movie again. <laughs> uh but yeah, if We'll talk more about it. This isn't even a movie that made my top 30, but I just think it's really simple and sweet and kind of just serves as a mantra for all artists of any kind. This is from a movie called The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, what a year for, for him. And I wouldn't go out. I wouldn't say go out of your way to see this movie. It's amazing. But, you know, it's about a guy who painted cats. <laughs> How can I not like it? Yes, it is kind of biopicy, but the uh, the line of dialogue that I just simply went oh was, however hard things get, however much you feel like you're struggling, just remember that the world is full of beauty and it's up to you to capture it. I went oh, <laughs> you know something simple like that. I just it just resonated with me, and uh, yeah, that movie has a lot of cats, so. I liked it. What can I say? Uh, best acting newcomer. Um, for me, there's two choices. One is Josephine Sanz, uh, who plays Nellie, the uh, young lead in Petite Maman. Um, I just thought she was really, really good. And I don't know if that's her first movie, but certainly, you know, she's young enough that I assume that was a safe bet. And yeah. then the other one is the one woman in the diner in Bad Trip. Uh, who's really excited <laughs> that, that that the two guys are going to get killed? Um, that she's she's she works security. She's like she, I work security. I don't miss a thing. And that whole scene is just about her being the biggest fucking snitch in the world. Uh, so uh, my hats off to you, Jackie. Uh, you're very very funny, and I hope uh, to see you uh, for years to come. Wow. Yeah, I should watch that again and have some laughs. What's your choice, Brad? Completely agree on the uh, Petite Maman uh, choice. My choice is from a movie that I have kind of a complicated relationship with, which is the remake of West Side Story. Oh, yeah. A lot to a lot to offer a lot of really cool things about it and a lot of things that bother me about it. And the one thing that I could say I have no qualms about is uh, the choice for Maria, which is a new actress, her first film, uh, Rachel Zegler. Mm-hmm. And she is amazing. She brings the charisma and just presence, whether she's singing, whether she's acting, anytime she's on the screen, she is drawing you to her. And she, uh, and the fact that her, uh, her Tony, uh, Anson Elgort, like, is terrible and has no chemistry at all. So she's actually got to supply the chemistry for both of them. And she does it. 
So I'm, I'm looking forward to her being in uh, more consistently great movies. <laughs> I agree with that for sure. Um, it's so predictable at this point to go with Alana Hyam, but <laughs> yeah, definitely her. And I also want to give a, a, a shout out to, uh, I'm going to butcher her name, Agath Roussel from Titan who just kind of floored me in every way with that debut performance, uh, just unexpected. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of I, I, that movie went down a little bit for me on a rewatch, but uh, both performances in that film are quite astonishing to, for, for me anyway, uh, best ensemble. I might, as well, I might as well just go first real quick, just because going off of what you said, Brad, I <laughs> am surprised to say uh, I went with West Side Story over Licorice Pizza. I'm not that big of a fan of Ansel Elgort, <laughs> but there's no denying that, yeah, certain stars in, are born here right in front of our eyes. People I haven't seen before. Everybody surrounding him really deserves credit for doing such a great job that uh, it's a surprise to me because I'm I, I'm not as high up as a lot of people are. On West Side Story, I certainly love a lot about it. And one of the things I love the most are, is the ensemble in this film. So I'm just going to go ahead, go ahead and say that's my choice for best ensemble. How about you, Patrick? No sudden move. Everyone is great in it and everyone is in it. Yes. Another great choice. How about you, Brad? Uh, my ensemble is small but mighty. It's for the uh, drama Mass, which oh, is real. yeah or person piece uh two sets of parents who have uh are meeting in a church basement uh regarding a tragedy that has affected both of their uh children and all four of these people there's no one lead but they all have their time to truly shine and do some of the greatest acting i've seen this year they are uh, reed bernie and dowd jason isaacs and Martha Plimpton, all amazing. I highly recommend people see that movie. It didn't make my list, but I, wow. All those performances, you're right. That's another great pick. Okay, so most nail-biting moment, Patrick. What, what are you saying for this one? Um, I had to sort of go through my memory of this movie because I knew it was just pretty much the entirety of this movie, but I couldn't pinpoint what was the moment that made me sort of bite my fist and scream. Um, and then I was reminded it was the scene, it was the bracelet reveal in Shiva baby when um, mm. the guy, the main character has been having an affair with uh, who gave her this bracelet. He gave her the same bracelet he gave his wife. The moment that her, his wife sort of sees that, you know, the jig is up and something is going to explode because it's no longer a secret. She's just not ready to reveal that she knows. Um, so for me, the bracelet reveal in Shiva Baby was the most nail-biting moment. It's a great choice. It's biting my nails a lot in that one. <laughs> just captured anxiety quite a bit. Um, all right, Brad, what would you say? I will pick Paul Schrader's The Card Counter. Ooh. The, the particular moment I have in mind is also a bit spoilery, so uh, be warned on that. It is revealed that our um, uh, Oscar Isaac's uh, gambler is also a former uh, torturer at uh, Abu Ghraib. And he is uh, 
basically partnered up with a with a young man, and they seem they seem like there's kind of a uh, good relationship building. But at one point, he turns on him and describes in great and graphic detail the type of torture he could perform on him if he so chose, if uh, if the young man uh, did not do what he suggests. And that entire uh, setup is just absolutely chilling. He describes that. Another movie I want to watch again. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird how a lot of people felt love for First Reformed and, and the card counter right out of the gate. And my relationship with both of them are, are complicated, but there's amazing moments like that uh, for sure. And that's, that's, that's a great pick as well. Um, so for me, there's, there's an aspect ratio change during a, the last 20 minutes of my choice. And I'm, I'm still like, well, that's an, that's, I wasn't sure why the director chose to do that. So it's still something I'm like, Hmm, what does it mean for that to happen all of a sudden, but pretty much the entire climax of the last act of this movie called the killing of two lovers it's just one like intense ball of tension and an unease and confrontation between three people in a way that just really pushed me to the edge of my seat. Cause you really are expecting based on the title <laughs> for something insane to happen. Uh, and I won't say if it does or not, but wow. Uh, that's, that's a film I'll talk about later as well. So my choice is the ending of, the killing of two lovers is pretty much just that sustained nail biting uh, best actor, Patrick. Um, so I don't have gendered uh, acting categories, so I don't have a best actor or best actress. Um, uh, my choice is my instinct is to go with honor Swinton burn in souvenir part two. But the thing about that is it's hard for me in my head to separate her performance in souvenir part two with the souvenir. <laughs> um, and because, you know, it's the same character, same actor you know, the, the second film picks up pretty much immediately after the first one. Um, and I do think the first film has so much more, her, she's so much more dynamic in it. There's so much more going on and mm-hmm. it is a more impressive performance. So it kind of feels weird to give it to her for part two, which is just sort of benefiting from the work she did in another movie. Um, so I would go with Rachel Sennett in Shiva Baby. She's the lead. And that's a movie that um, pulls off a very neat trick of going from this sort of, awkward situational uh, sort of uh, anxiety comedy into like a full-blown kind of uh, uh, almost like throwback 70s, like psycho thriller, uh, uh, you know, female mental breakdown kind of a movie. Um, And that slide only works because Rachel Sennett really portrays every part of her character extremely well. She's, um, She's able to be vulnerable and shitty and funny and um, petty. And like, she's able to every single scene, she plays it perfectly. And that's a movie that would feel like some kind of, you know, curb your enthusiasm <laughs> kind of riff uh, if it wasn't played perfectly well, but it is. So Rachel Sennett really blew me away in Shiva Baby. It's a great choice. Brad, your turn. I have to offer a, a blanket apology because so many of my favorite people this year, uh, I will probably have trouble pronouncing their names, which is... Yes. No sign of disrespect, but uh, I cannot not make this choice. Uh, he is Hitatoshi 
Nishiyama, uh, the lead from Drive My Car. We have a match. Oh, cool. Yeah, I just loved the way what he held back because there's so many emotions that you know he was feeling and dealing with, uh, and they're complicated ones. And he expressed them by doing very little outwardly, yes. Yes. but you still, you still got it. He still communicated all that to you. Yeah. Subtle nuance. Uh, yeah. And it really sneaks up on you that movie and his performance. I mean, when he finally kind of comes to terms with his feelings and lets loose, it's completely earned by that point and you buy it and it's not melodramatic in any way. Uh, I, I was totally captivated by everything he did. Even like you said, he wasn't very outwardly expressive, but that's for good reason. You know, uh, he's been through a lot. <laughs> Uh, and and, and, the yeah. theme of film is what you don't express. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and I also want to give a special mention to someone who should receive a little bit more attention. That would be Clayne Crawford from the film, the killing of two lovers again, who after his turn in the show rectify. And now this, I'm excited to see more from Clayne Crawford. Uh, and yeah, this again, a lot bubbling underneath the surface, a lot of, inner turmoil not being expressed at all times and when it does it, it it's completely earned once again so i i wanted to give a special mention to him because nobody's talking about him or that movie as much um okay uh and also for best actress for me is dara campbell i don't know if that's how you say her first name but uh she's from Anne at thirteen thousand feet uh and that's a movie we'll i'll definitely be talking about more later on and uh, just really quickly giving a special shout out to Jessica Barden from Holler. And she's also in a film I'll briefly mention later called Pink Skies Ahead. So I really loved all those performances. And I'm going to double dip on mass because as much as I appreciated mm. the entire ensemble, I was blown away with what Martha Plimpton did especially since this is an actress that I haven't really been following as of late. I knew her as a, as a teen actress back in the eighties and here she is uh, this many years later. And I know she's done a lot of Broadway uh, in the, in between, but what she does with this role is stunning because it's, it's kind of like, like in drive my car. It's what she's holding back, except in this case, <laughs> tell there's this rage yeah uh, that she is keeping within throughout most of the movie and it is it is stressful to see because she you you feel like this woman could explode at any moment yet when she doesn't when you just kind of see this growing and growing inside her it's uh it's really really effective yeah i definitely agree with that as well how about best supporting performance, Patrick? Um, for me, uh, West Side Story, Robert Wise's West Side Story is a movie that I do think there are several avenues where it could be improved upon, but one that I would never expect uh, that to be the case would be Russ Tamblin's performance because I absolutely love him in that movie. Um, but it, that that is incorrect because Mike Faced as Riff in West Side Story it just absolutely blew me away. I was not expecting... Uh, I was not expecting to get so emotionally invested in uh, that film 
And him in particular carries so much of it. So Mike Face uh, was the best supporting actor for me. Splendid. Uh, Brad. Well, here's a situation where uh, I'm picking the actor for what he did to elevate the film. Uh, The film is The Harder They Fall, which is a blast. It's an all-black spaghetti western uh, done in the Tarantino ultraviolet style. And it's it's actually got a super ensemble cast all around. But Idris Elba, in particular, is wonderful because he is one of the greatest villains we've ever had. We saw it in The Wire. And basically, I think that as much as Idris Elba has shown he can pretty much do anything now, damn, if you need a villain, cast him. He is scary. He's awesome. <laughs> wow. That's, that one's on my list of shame, unfortunately. I, 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 I've seen it pop up on lists, and uh, for some reason, I just didn't catch up with that one. But I know it's on Netflix, isn't it? It is. It's a Netflix joint. So, yeah. All right. I'm going to have to catch up with that because I'm hearing a lot of good things. Um, you know, as much as I l- loved Bradley Cooper in Licorice Pizza, I've really come around to Cody Smith McPhee in, in The Power of the Dog, again, for his subtlety, which <laughs> I guess this is the year where I went for the way less showy and the more understated, probably because it's, I guess I'm getting older. I'm, pref- I'm I don't know, preferring calmer uh portrayals of, of certain characters but yeah i i think cody smith mcphee was you know really held his own uh, amongst some <laughs> bigger names in that film and certainly when you're going head to head with uh benedict cumberbatch being pretty phenomenal himself in that film uh he did something very different and kind of creepy and just you, you just you just didn't know where this character was coming from um and then best supporting actress this one's easy for me because i might i might have said the same for best actress last year and that would be one of my new favorites the great jesse buckley in the last daughter uh as reliable and and, and wonderful as olivia coleman is in everything uh jesse buckley here is playing the younger version of the same character that olivia coleman plays I just think it's a fearless performance at times in her portrayal of, uh, of a mother that uh, has a hard time being a mother, despite still loving her children. Uh, just, you know, is, is just not sure how to respond at all times emotionally or wants to be alone and can't. And she did a fantastic job portraying what that whole experience must be like. Anytime she's on screen, I'm riveted. So that's my choice. How about you, Brad? Best supporting actress for me is Charlotte Rampling from Benedetta. And it's a crazy, wild movie that is pretty schizophrenic. It's got scenes that uh, that are really interesting uh, meditations on faith. And then other scenes that are kind of Skinamax, uh, softcore stuff. (laughs) And... Uh, what grounds it, what really makes everything human and relatable is uh, Charlotte Rampling's performance uh, as the older not. All right. How about best score, Patrick? Uh, it's you know, kind of hard for me to say, because I think Dune is a movie that 70% of why it works is the sound. <laughs> but when I think back at it, it's really hard for me to separate the sound design from the score. It's a very 
yeah. just sort of droning tonal like you know score so i don't know if that's actually the best score or if that just movie has the best sound so the only other score that i even remembered was power of the dog and i thought it was a pretty good score so power of the dog takes it for me that's my choice and i'm gonna go kind of with with patrick's almost choice which is dune uh hans zimmer um it is a score that is less memorable than a lot of uh, the scores i generally pick but the score and and yes it is sort of difficult to separate what's music to what's sound design but i i think it drives the film in a really integral way and it reminded me a lot of uh peter gabriel's work on uh, last temptation of christ oh hmm it utilized um, Middle Eastern sounds and uh, it, it, it really, I really just have to give it to it because I don't feel that movie would be what it, what it is without that score. That's a good call. Yeah. I got to see Dune again. <laughs> um, best screenplay. Hmm. Um, so I feel like I should probably give it to drive my car, but drive my car is a movie that is so dense that I didn't really crock it all and I need to rewatch it. Um, so it's, it's, it's sort of, maybe it's drive my car, but uh, as far as movies that I feel I can actually, uh, you know, wrap my head around the screenplay, it would probably be no sudden move, um, just cause it's full of great dialogue and it's really well paced. Um, and it just does the job very well in a way that movies don't anymore. Um, genre films generally just aren't this tight and uh, don't have this level of craft to them. Um, and so I really appreciated that about Ed Solomon's work on uh, No Sudden Move. Yeah, another one I want to watch again for sure. My choice is Drive My Car. <laughs> so there we go. How about you, Brad? I'll give it to uh, a guy who I would have given best screenplay to for many years in the past. He's one of my favorites, Paul Schrader for the card counter. Um, he, he really utilizes some of his uh, theme, themes from his other films, but in a different way and allowing, um, allowing a real change in tone, depending on how, we look at our lead character, the supporting characters are also very rich and the movie goes in places that I don't think are is easy pr to predict, but once you've watched it, it all kind of just fits together really nicely. Wow. Another movie I want to see again. I think I've said that before. Anyway, <laughs> I, uh, most people know I like to put out positive energy into the world in general, but, uh, I think it's fair to say that we don't always see great films. So I'm totally fine with mentioning a movie that you thought uh, was underwhelming and you would consider to be the worst that you saw all year. Patrick, what was the worst film of 2021 for you? I think we have cinematography still. You're probably right. <laughs> and I missed it. <laughs> um, so cinematography for me Thank is you. a toss up between three movies, uh, Dune or West Side Story or Come On, Come On. Mm. All good choices. Uh, my choice is The Green Knight. How about Brad? Mine is Last Night in Soho 
which has uh, some of my favorite visuals I've seen in a long, long time. Very cool. Yeah, lots of great mirror sequences and that for sure. Anyway, uh, <laughs> going back to what I said earlier, how about the worst film of 2021? Um, I got two possible choices. One maybe doesn't count as a film. It's more of a limited series, but Peter Jackson's Get Back um, is absolutely terrible in every possible way you Whoa, can imagine. Oh, hot take. Um, and uh, I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's not a movie, but it's also just like, as far as just it's diehard, just utter hatred of, of film uh, as a medium. Like it's, it's kind of hard to top. Um, and also it's boring as fuck. Um, it's, it's like the absolute worst uh, Beatles album. I would want to see that, uh, that uh, take on. So get back. No, thanks. But uh, that's not a film really. So Finch, uh, which to me is Finch to me is this, is the future of film as content, which is, Ooh. it's got a crappy high premise, uh, high concept premise and it's got a movie star lead and there's not a single thing about it that has the least bit of inspiration whatsoever. Um, Finch uh, with Tom Hanks is just the most boring fucking movie I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever see that. I have no interest. Mm -mm. This is not the forum for it, but I wish we had a bonus episode to really dive in to uh, get back because I just adored it in every way. But uh, I figured that was going to happen, that there was. Yeah, I'm pretty predictable when it comes to the Beatles. But uh, hell, my choice might also be controversial because I um, I didn't see anything that was just like total crap, like everything I went to see is something I thought had a chance uh, of really being a great film of the year. But it, it turns out I've just had it with Wes Anderson. And for, yeah, the French Dispatch was like a bridge too far. It's like, okay, I liked, I liked a lot what he used to do. I love the Royal Tannenbaums, but this formula, both visually and, and story-wise, has gotten so repetitive his his bag of tricks has gotten so old that now i feel he's just become so internalized in his own head and i'm sorry i don't read the new yorker or you know but i have an insight into like his head but he's i need more i need more than actors looking at the camera i need more than stat than static shots that are um that look pretty. I need something to engage. And for me, like French dispatch provided none of that. Wow. I'm in shock right now. I don't know if I can continue. I don't know if I can continue. I might need a moment. Well, if I can get over the get back thing, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> we do have to keep things moving. So, uh, yes. Anyway, he made a very good movie this year, um, called Cyrano. But he also made a movie that sat on the shelf for quite a while and contains one of the worst performances from Amy Adams that I can recall. I went with Joe Wright's The Woman in the Window, and I know there are probably worse movies in 2021. There's, you know, there's there's quite a few, but uh, this one just made my eyes roll pretty much from beginning to end. And as much as I love you know, Hitchcockian ripoff thrillers of things like Rear Window. This one was just way too silly. Uh, terrible twist, poorly executed, poorly acted, 
uh, I just couldn't take it seriously at all. And I never thought I would say this, but mm, Amy Adams is pretty, pretty bad in the woman in the window. So uh, as I said in my letterbox review, Joe wrong. <laughs> I'm going to insert a laugh track there. Anyway, yeah. most promising <laughs> discovery director or actor. Um, I uh, narrowed it down to four. I got uh, Michael Sarnowski for pig, the director of pig. Uh, Emma Seligman, the director of Shiva baby. Mm. Uh, Rebecca Hall, who obviously has had a long career in film, but passing was the, her first directed film and she did an absolutely phenomenal job. Yes. Um, and then Mike face uh, the, my best supporting actor from uh, West side story. All good picks, Brad. What say you? I have a match to one of them. Uh, for me, it's uh, Michael Sar- Sarnowski for Pig. I figure anybody who can, uh, for his first directorial debut, uh, bring out a controlled and wonderful performance from Nicolas Cage deserves some credit. Uh, Pig is excellent. It also manages to work a number of tones uh, at the same time. And so uh, got to give him credit for that. I'm going with a teaming of Kadzik Radwanski and Dara Campbell from a film I'll be talking about later called Anne at 13,000 feet. But I also agree with the director of pig. Those are all great choices. Everyone. Good job. Um, Anyway, how about the final category best older film you saw for the first time? And of course I, I should just say, come up with a list of the best older films that you've seen for the first time. If you want to anyway, it doesn't have to be one title, but if there's one that really stood out above all of them, what is it? I, uh, I have, I'm going through my top 10 new watches um, along with my top 10 of 2021. So I'm just going to go ahead and abstain from this one. Okay. Yes. Very good. How about Brad? So, yeah. I found pretty much the best blind buy I ever purchased was the Hammer Films Ultimate Collection, which is a 20 film set. And I bought it because the film, the Hammer Films I had seen so far, I loved, and it had a few of them, but most of the films on the set I had never seen, I had never heard of. I really had only seen Hammer's monster movies, but they had a movie in this set called Scream of Fear. The original uh, British title was uh, Taste of Fear. It's a 1961 um, suspense thriller uh, directed by Seth Holt. It is amazing. It is, while not quite matching it, it deserves comparisons to Psycho. It deserves comparisons to Diabolique. For For like those kind of thrillers, if you like those movies, this one is amazing. Christopher Lee. I think I own that on DVD. I think I own that on DVD, so I got to check that out for sure. Yeah, Christopher Lee said that was the best film that he made uh, when he was working with, uh, yeah, Hammer. And and so just the fact that it's not a, not a not a standard horror, which is what what they're known for. Yeah, and it might be the best Hammer film. Wow, I'm gonna have to seek that out. Um, yeah, I, I have a short list, but. Nevertheless, these are the ones that stood out and probably would be in the 4.5 or five star range category for me. 
um, a Swedish love story by uh, Roy Anderson, an autumn afternoon by Ozu, Jean Dielman by Chantal Ackerman, uh, out of the blue, uh, Dennis Hopper, which I believe is getting some sort of release at the music box soon in some restoration. I believe I'll be there for that. And, uh, the best years of our lives. It took a long time for me to finally catch up with that. Holy cow. Turns out, turns out that's a good movie. (laughs) Yeah. It turns out. Yeah. It deserves all the acclaim humanly possible. And of course uh, a special one that um, I I know many people have been recommending lately, including Bill Ackerman and uh, yourself, Patrick. I mean, I was kind of blown away by chameleon street. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Wow. I, I, I'm planning on maybe just doing a whole like 30 minute, 45 minute bonus discussion on that film alone. So we may we, we might have to do that because there's a lot to say about it. Um for sure. That's, that's cool, guys. The, oh, the categories are done. Wow. Are we ready to just move on to honorable mentions? Sure. Okay. Um, we can ch- I, we can change things up. I'll go first this time, and then we'll work backwards. And uh, yeah, so it'll go me, Brad, then Patrick. So honorable mentions for me: twenty-five, Summer of Soul. or when the revolution cannot be televised, a fantastic music documentary. That I wish didn't have moments as, you know, moments where the performances were interrupted by interviews. Uh, but what what can you say about seeing Stevie Wonder and, and Nina Simone and everyone performing in a way that you can't help but be grateful to see? It's fantastic. Questlove did a great job. Number 24 is I Blame Society. That's Jillian Horvat's uh, debut kind of like Heather's meets American psycho mixed with a mockumentary. And it goes to some very dark, interesting places announces a great new talent that I can't wait to see more from number 23 is Titan or Titan, <laughs> a movie that just dipped a bit for me on a rewatch, maybe because the surprise element wasn't there, but the setup is so great. Uh, and I was surprised that I ended up quite moved by where it went. And a lot of that has to do with, uh, with those two performances. Number 22 is Pink Skies Ahead. I reviewed this at length during the last episode on Fritz Long, but uh, to suffice to say, I think a lot of people won't walk away thinking this is an incredible work of art, but it, but for me, it's just one I related to personally. It takes place in the mid to late 90s, uh, and it's, it's about a, a young woman struggling in her early 20s with a panic disorder and experiencing anxiety attacks. Uh, and yeah, it just it reflected my life in more ways than one. So that's a personal choice for me. Uh, 21 is Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Definitely the most consistently funny movie of 2021. And 
the the sequence involving their love of a character named Trish is pure comedy gold, uh, as are many moments in that film. Just made me laugh and smile pretty much through the whole thing. 20 is Dimland, uh, a really underground indie gem. I believe the filmmaker is from Chicago, but it's about uh, a woman going through a difficult relationship and together with uh, with their partner, they, they visit uh, her childhood home to discover something a little unexpected, possibly in the woods. It's very lo-fi at times Lynchian kind of kind of just odd and unpredictable in ways that are hard to describe but i recommend it dim land seek it out 19 is spencer uh this particular director made two films and then that came out this year uh the other being emma and this one just has another great performance from Kristen stewart great score from johnny greenwood it's gorgeous to look at and like i mentioned uh late in the film uh all I need is a miracle is a, a beautiful moment of catharsis in a way. Uh, number 18 is the velvet underground Todd Haynes's terrific documentary about uh, that amazing band that is done in a very interesting mosaic like fashion with multiple images on screen at once. If you're a fan of this band, you're going to learn something and you'll be entertained. And as always, I'm, I'm grateful for anything that Todd Haynes does, but I'm also glad this wasn't just another talking heads style love fest in uh, music documentary form. It's really well done. Number 17 is pig Nicholas cage uh, giving his best performance in a very long time. And the scene in the restaurant is kind of what sold me on this movie, even though I don't think it's perfect uh, use of like shaky cam at times kind of got to me and I'm not sure what's going on with the, uh, the underground fight club, but uh, oh no, the movie is fantastic. And I can't wait to see what this director does next. Number 16 is Bergman Island. Another film I reviewed uh, a a little bit more in detail when Bill Ackerman and I talked Abel Ferrara, but Mia Hansen loves kind of subtle, unassuming personal story about art and creativity and how reality and fiction sort of intermingle at times. Great cast, uh, you know, all this kind of worked for me. In the same way that my number 15 choice uh, did as well, The Souvenir Part 2, Joanna Hogg's terrific sequel that is pretty much right on par with the first Souvenir, complete with a great soundtrack, another lovely turn, like Patrick mentioned, from uh, Honor Swinton Byrne. There's a uh, stunning moment involving the screening of her uh, final film project that she's been working on and uh, contains one of the year's most sublime final shots for sure. Uh, number 14, sorry, Brad, but I'm still a Wes Anderson fan. Uh, the French dispatch turning out to be uh, more of a divisive film than I expected, but yeah, I mean, people could say it's his weakest, but it's right in the middle for me. I loved a lot about it. Didn't quite care much for the second story as much as the others, but it's a feast for thine eyes. I really love his uh, his technique, and it continues to impress me in how much he can fill in a screen in a certain short period of time. But it did sneak up on uh, you know up a bit on me emotionally during a scene between um, Jeffrey Wright and Bill Murray late in the film. I think it's after the third story has concluded. I think that's kind of what the film's about, more or less. But I still loved it. What can I say? And I, I'm, I'm a sucker for this director. Uh, 13 is Procession. It might be my favorite documentary of the year, which I also reviewed uh, 
uh, on the Sarah Polly episode, but it's, ew, it's so heavy. It's so hard to watch. It's got incredibly dark subject matter. And yet it certainly made me cry harder than just about anything else this year. Number 12 is the killing of two lovers starring clean Crawford. Uh, and it's about this married couple who are also parents and they're trying to maintain their connection somehow while also separating, uh, keeping their distance for reasons that are kind of unclear, but <laughs> at the same time, it's, it's also clear that she, uh, the wife is seeing somebody else and it's about his, how he's affected by that, how the husband is affected by that. It's kind of like the dark side of modern romance uh, with incredible sound design. I, I just was floored by a lot of the choices they make on the soundtrack throughout the entire film. And one of the best scenes of the year involves a date night inside uh, inside of a truck between the married couple. So please seek that out if you haven't. And number 11, a, a new addition to the list. It's a film called Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. And it's a 70-minute Japanese sci-fi comedy that I think only played a festival or two, but I sought it out because someone described it to me as coherence only with time travel. And that's exactly what it is. Uh, and it's often done in these great one-take sequences uh, in, the, in the same vein as something like One Cut of the Dead without, obviously there's no zombies this time, but it's really just one of the most fun times I've had watching a movie all year. Wait, well, I mean, that's how I started 2022. <laughs> so it's uh, certainly something I hope people can seek out when it comes out later this month, I think, on streaming. But uh, if you want to smile for 70 minutes, make a note of this film called Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. That's it for me for my honorable mentions. And I will note that last one. Yes, please do. My uh, number 25 is Guillermo del Toro's remake of Nightmare Alley. It looks great as, uh, as his films do. I think I would have loved it even more if I was not such a fan and so familiar of the original 1940s noir. So it didn't really have any surprises for me, but uh, just based on atmospherics and uh, some of the supporting performances, uh, particularly uh, David Strahatham, I, I really enjoyed it. 24, No Time to Die. Uh, Probably in my the very middle of the Daniel Craig uh, Bond cycle, uh, not as great as Casino Royale or Skyfall, but uh, far better than uh, Quantum of Solace and Spectre. Solid Bond at number 23, Licorice Pizza, which I liked, but Considering the standard I generally hold Paul Thomas Anderson to, uh, I have he's one of these directors who I've loved every film he's made. I, mm -hmm. I have to say that I love all his other films more than this. It might have been a little too episodic for me, but some of those episodes were pretty great, and I really appreciated kind of the, the 1970s uh, feel the film brought. And a lot of a lot of the character work, it was kind of like there were times when I was really enjoying it and times when not so much. 22, Judas and the Black Messiah, a uh, strong film about uh, Black Panthers, although 
it's a little different because we mostly focus on uh, the FBI informant. At uh, 21, the harder they fall, I mentioned it earlier, uh, just a fun spaghetti Western, ultra-violent, uh, an amazing cast. Um, it, Regina King, uh, in particular, uh, stands out as a as a particularly vicious killer. But then again, most of the characters in the movie are vicious ki- ki- killers, which is a lot of fun. Number uh, 20, The Green Knight, uh, David Lowry's um, take on the... Uh, Arthur legend or the Arthur adjacent legend, visually amazing. It's uh, the next two films are ones that I found had really interesting themes, but I, they're themes that made are made apparent as the movie ends. So um, they're not higher because I, I enjoyed them more in retrospect than while watching. And, and this was one of them Uh, the same with uh, my number uh, nine, choice the power of the dog which when its themes are revealed at the very end are are really fascinating and also that movie has some excellent uh performances in it at number 18 spencer um i was not expecting my uh princess diana biopic to remind me of the shining but here we are uh it really uh had a great tone to it uh the oppressiveness of what it must have been like to live in that environment with your every move uh, under a microscope is uh, really strongly conveyed here. And Kristen Stewart is excellent. At number 17, West Side Story. Uh, This didn't need to happen. Uh, I think the 1961 West Side Story is one of my all-time favorite films. And yes, Steven Spielberg brings directing musical numbers is pretty much a joy, particularly uh, the American number. Uh, Most of the cast is excellent. But again, as such a fan of the original, this still feels a little bit redundant to me. And I would still say that uh, 1961 remains my go-to West Side Story. But I, I, it's hard not to enjoy such uh, such a great musical, such strong material. At number 16, Benedetta, Paul Verhoeven's um, take on, uh, well, I mean, I guess the headline take is lesbian nuns, but it's really a, about more than that. It's really about um, how religion works and how religion asks people to take certain things on faith and what happens if you actually do that. And the results are, are mixed. Uh, There's scenes in this movie that are absolutely uh, amazing filmmaking. And then there's scenes where it's just sensationalistic, but I guess uh, that's Paul Verhoeven (laughs) at number 15, summer of soul. Just uh, a lot of great music, but uh, I, I did appreciate kind of the structure of the documentary itself because I felt it provided a lot of context and history. And we got to hear really about how not only did this amazing uh, music festival in Harlem take place, and it, but it also uh, was basically buried and not, and this footage hasn't been seen 
up until now. And I liked how with each kind of genre of performer, you get a, uh, a different uh, a different view of different elements of, of Black culture. So I found it both really enjoyable musically and uh, also really informative. Number 14, Dune. Dune looks beautiful. Dune is certainly, because it's a movie of this year, is, is full of CGI, but it reminded me of kind of those early 80s sci-fi days and the kind of post-Star Wars era when stuff like uh, Star Trek II was coming out and just, just took its time and was fascinated by 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 its own world it's creating and i think because it's so much easier to create worlds now that a lot of uh science fiction doesn't take the time to appreciate it like this one does um so i it was a really nice experience i'm looking forward to the uh the sequel because it does in fact end uh, uh halfway into the story so i'll have to wait till seeing both sides to really see you know what the whole dune experience uh will become uh number 13 spider-man no way home oh by far the best of the uh mcu films this year uh it is not a standalone film one must have seen uh the various previous iterations and earlier spider-man movies to really appreciate it but if you have it's just one of those popcorn movies that are a blast and uh, had a lot more emotional resonance than I thought it might. But again, that kind of depends on having some history uh, with the character. Number 12, uh, Petite Maman, um, Celine Sciamma's uh, follow-up uh, movie uh, to a Portrait of a Woman on Fire, and it doesn't quite reach that level but it's charming as hell. It's a, it's basically about these uh, uh, young girls um, playing together and when elements of magical realism enter the picture, it's it's very effective. And, you know, in a, in a very different way, this movie also really uh, creates its own world. Number 11, Pig. Uh, mentioned mentioned it before. Uh, it starts out as one kind of movie that well, it starts out as the kind of movie you imagine it might be, and then it very slyly starts revealing that it's not interested in in that at all. That it has much deeper motivations, and uh, Nicolas Cage is amazing in it. And it does one of my favorite things that movies do, which is get very detailed into a particular. Uh, hobby or vocation, in this case, uh, the world of, of cooking. Good call. Those are a lot of good picks there. Some of them might come up again, I'm sure, later on. How about Patrick? What are your honorable mentions? Uh, I have six in no particular order. Um, Bad Trip is just the traditional <laughs> comedy movies don't get appreciated by me as much as they should uh, on these kinds of lists. Uh, it's spectacularly funny and the things it does to expand the possibility space of the sort of jackass style prank movie are astounding. Um, and it's just a uh, unexpectedly warm and human movie um, from someone like Eric Andre, who does not strike me as particularly warm uh, or human. 
Um, my next is Benedetta. Uh, it's Paul Verhoeven doing the sex thriller and only the way he can. I love the way that uh, he um, is able to sort of use the audience's identity politics against them. You are consistently sort of taking sides in any given scene. And a lot of the times you take sides based on, well, you know, you have a natural sympathy for this character because they're queer or they're a woman or whatever. And it turns out, no, they're all horrible people. It's That's not the kind of movie it is. This isn't a, you know, inspiring whatever tale. Um, it looks like shit, but, you know, he probably just couldn't get the kind of budget to make a movie that, like, you know, Basic Instinct is a movie that looks spectacular, um, but ba- he doesn't have Basic Instinct money in 2021. So uh, it just kind of looks like crap. But uh, other than that, it's just really fun. Um, Malignant by James Wan is a movie that most people seem to agree only really kicks in in the third act. I disagree. I think it's really, really fun the whole way through. I just had a big, dumb smile on my face the entire time. It's so dumb. Uh, it's so ridiculous. Uh, every single part of it is so fevered and, and insane. Um, it's all of the murder sequences are really bad. Like he just can't shoot and edit any of those, uh, for suspense or effectiveness or, anything in a way that's kind of surprising considering how good he is at like the ghost scare sequences in a movie like the conjuring. I thought maybe he would have similar visual ideas, but he doesn't. Um, but still malignant, uh, just one of the best times I had in theater this year. Um, drive my car. I already talked about this is a movie that probably is better than I'm giving it credit for, but I just could not wrap my head around it. Um, the, uh, the ending, not the, not the coda, but sort of the ending of the main story in which, uh, we see, a sign language version of the end of Uncle Vanya um, was just really, really moving. Um, and I can't wait to watch it again. And at 13,000 feet is kind of just one note, but it does it really well. It has a really good lead performance in it. Um, and then Petite Maman is a movie that is uh, very small and subdued and gentle. And it's not trying to sort of give you this big gut punch the way like a portrait of a woman on fire is. Um, but it's, it was just really good and it's really well directed and all the performances are great. Um, and it was very, very warm and pleasant and I really enjoyed and appreciated, uh, it as this sort of simple, magical realist, uh, story uh, about families and stuff. So Petite Maman's really cool. Oh, it's very cool. We'll talk about it again. Uh, wow. Honorable mentions. Amazing. That was fun. Um, so where shall we go? Do you want to take a break? Are you, is everybody good and you know hydrated and all that fun stuff? <laughs> yeah, why don't we just take a couple of minutes and we'll reconvene. Hey, and we're back. Here on uh, Directors Club Podcast, I just got an email over at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com, and that's that's also how you want to enter this contest. By January 11th. Email with your name, address, and your favorite film of 2021. I got one early, even before this episode's been released. The Thomas Wishloff edition of the Top 10 Films of 2021. Thomas Wishloff, he was a, a guest on the Oliver Stone episode, and... Uh, lifelong fan, a great guy, very talented, excellent writer. Uh, his top 10 films are as follows. Number 10 is Play Durzum by Gem Dijer. I'm saying that all wrong. Number 9 is Titan. 
Number eight is Come On, Come On. Number seven is As In Heaven. Number six is Licorice Pizza. Number five is Old. Hmm. Number four is Zola. Number three is We're All Going to the World's Fair. Number two, Bergman Island. And number one is Memoria. Thomas also says, Patrick, I hope that you and Regina are holding up okay. I miss seeing your voice on Letterboxd. You are one hell of a writer and one that remained true to yourself in a way that I find refreshing on a site that promotes hive mind mentality. He also says, Jim, congratulations on making it through grad school. Moreover, thanks for continuing to host an excellent podcast. And he mentions a couple of directors he wouldn't mind coming on board for, and I'm all for it. Thanks, Thomas, and everybody else out there. Send in those emails. Okay, let's get back to the program properly. Hooray! Are we, are we ready to proceed? Top 10 favorites of 2021. Wow, what a year. Let's get to it. This time we're having Brad go first with his number 10 pick of 2021. My pick is the worst person in the world. Oh, we'll be hearing about that one a little bit later. Oh, very cool. Uh, and uh, sorry, again, this is another name I may uh, butcher, but it's from uh, director uh, uh, Joachim uh, Trier. And uh, apparently it is part of a trilogy that I have not seen the first uh, two parts of. Which oh, I didn't were, know that. Huh. Yeah, I, Reprise and Oslo 31 August hmm. uh, were the first. And now having seen this, I'm absolutely going to seek them out. It is uh, describing the plot. It's going to kind of sound like a romantic comedy, but it is in no way uh, standard. It's if uh, it reminded me a little bit of 500 days of summer in the way that it took uh, romantic uh, comedy tropes and went its own way. Uh, basically it follows a, a young woman uh, named uh, Julie, who is, very unsure of the direction of her life and where she wants to take it. And uh, part of that has to do with her career and a lot of, and a lot of it has to do with uh, romances. And we see her in the course of uh, a lot of relationships, really two key ones. And the movie just looks at these relationships with a much more intelligent and thoughtful eye than most uh, most films of the genre. And it also gives itself a chance to be kind of uh, silly and different. So there's a, a scene when she imagines the entire world freezing and she's the only one that can move. And so she runs out uh, to as she's going to make her choice of which guy to be with. And... Uh, and you see her running towards him while everyone else is in a freeze frame. And um, then there's another really interesting scene where uh, there's a kind of a meet cute, but instead of getting together, like you'd imagine uh, two people in a romance would do, they decide since they're both with other people, they don't want to cheat. So they try to figure out all the most intimate things they could do with each other that would not constitute cheating. So mm -hmm. this is just a really cool uh, slice of life film that uh, that's a, a breath of fresh air for a genre that rarely has that. Yeah. I, I'm so excited for more people to see this one. I don't know when it's officially coming out. It's probably one of those 
again, like petite mama, one of those situations where it'll probably pop up in, in late February or something. And uh, hopefully show at a place like the Siskel, I would think, you know, yeah, that seems right. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that's the case. Cause it's, 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 yeah, we'll talk about it again very soon. How about Patrick? What is your number 10? Hmm. My number 10 is the French, Dis- the French dispatch uh, by Wes Anderson. Um, it's just Wes Anderson doing the same old shit, but no one else can do that shit. So he might as well keep doing it. Um, the first story is very funny. And the last story is very funny and very moving. Um, and the middle story is entirely useless. Um, but you know, at least it has those other two stories. Whereas, you know, there are movies like life aquatic and Royal Tenenbaums, which are neither funny nor emotionally invested. So, you know, it's not certainly not the bottom of my Wes Anderson list. Um, and it's just one of those movies that, uh, in a, in a year that increasingly felt like everything was content and everything was designed uh, in a way that made the theatrical experience an afterthought. This is a movie that I cannot possibly imagine on any screen except a movie theater screen. Um, the way it does, you know, wide shots and stuff like that and all the details, the sort of Jacques Tati uh, inspired uh, compositions and stuff um, were all just delightful. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it is what it is, and it's it's not something I have a um, you know a big passion for the way like a Moonrise Kingdom or a Grand Budapest Hotel were really exciting, um, but it's definitely a movie that I can imagine uh, maybe watching like a dozen more times, and every time just having uh, a really nice time and enjoying myself. So that's my number ten for 2021, and then for my uh, top ten new watches. Um, my number 10 is Malatesta's Carnival of Blood from 1973, directed by Ooh. Christopher Spieth. Um, for my birthday this year, I got drunk and I ate a pizza and I watched Malatesta's Carnival of Blood. It's an extremely low budget, uh, local independent horror film that takes place at a carnival. And it captures the thing that is actually scary about carnivals, which is they are ramshackle and everything looks seedy and cheap. And they are entirely staffed by drug addicts. Um, in this case, the drug addicts are zombies. But uh, it's got, um, it's just got really, really good vibes. Um, it's very similar to, uh, it's it's a lot rougher technically, but it's very similar, I would say, to something like a, um, a Messiah of Evil in terms of um, just feeling like you're sliding out of control as you're watching it. Uh, there's a lot of really, really good visuals that just come from them shooting at an actual, I don't know if it's an abandoned carnival or, or what, but there's this uh, sort of airless nature to it. You don't see any patrons to this carnival. Um, it's It's got a really awesome downer ending. Uh, it's got this just feeling, uh, it's got the, the feeling that a lot of really good uh, low budget 70s horror films have where it's just this, totally hopeless feeling of surrender and it's just everyone slowly falling into quicksand and it's not plotted in a way where you're like oh they almost got caught and then they escape like it's not that it's just things getting worse and worse and 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 you just feel terrible um and there's an image at the end where a police officer throws balls at a dunk tank and he dunks a corpse into water and there's just something about that to me that uh summed up 2021 (laughs) it's it's just like it's just like uh well the uh the people who have been put in charge of keeping us safe 
um, not only do not care about our corpses, but will uh, actively work to uh, dispose of them um, in a way that's convenient. So um, it's just it's just really fun. The final shot is just the villain riding around on a little merry-go-round because uh, he won. Um, it's part of the Arrow box set uh, American Horror Project or something along those lines. I think at mm-hmm. some point it might have been a something weird uh, DVD release. Um, it's great. Malatesta's Carnival of Blood. Uh, if you are the kind of person who really digs on, you know, sort of skeezy, low budget 70s horror movies that have uh, unexpected uh, art house pretensions, then uh, you really can't go wrong with it. Wow. And it's only 75 minutes, too. Oh, yeah. Cool. I'm going to make that a priority. And, and, and side note, I, I'm kind of liking this idea for the future of this podcast when we do the year end shows to maybe, yeah, do a side by side. Like this was the movie I loved from this year, but also here's a movie I loved from any year. I like, I like this pairing up you're doing. That's how I was feeling it this year. So that's what I want. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, I could have easily ranked, you know, some, some of the, my first time watches this year that were really strong. Uh, But yeah, I just for future reference, I think, I think people would enjoy this. Uh, new structure, but I'm uh, going with the predictable choice, I guess, of sorts for me, yet it is kind of surprising at how low it is as well. You mentioned Wes Anderson, Patrick. I'm mentioning a different Anderson. Can you guess who it could be? Monster Hunter? <laughs> Wait. Monster Hunter? No, no. Paul W.S. Anderson's Monster Hunter starring no. Mila Jovovich? No, 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 no. That's not it. Oh, okay. This movie has licorice and pizza in the title. So, yeah, so you can probably just put those two words together and come up with the title. It is Paul Thomas Anderson's licorice pizza. And, okay, while we all have recalled times in the past when a new film by this director started out lower on the list of favorites and it sent shockwaves through uh, cyberspace. Like, Oh my God, why isn't this in at least in his top three? But, um, (laughs) and as much as, you know, like, yeah, okay. I want to put this higher after two viewings. I'm not there with this movie in in the same way uh, you mentioned, Brad, I was like, Hmm. When this was over, I didn't feel my usual, uh, cinematic euphoria that was like, you know, like wanting to jump over to a mountain and scream from the hilltops, go see the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. It's amazing. That didn't happen. Uh, and I know, I know a lot of people who have seen this already, but a lot, like a lot of titles on this list, for those who haven't seen it, I don't want to ruin certain details that I think are best seen without knowing them. Uh, in fact, I brought up on the last episode, and I think in, in a different way earlier, that there were certain scenes in the trailer that I was like really excited to see how they play in context in the film. Oh, and they're not even in the movie. So, uh, again, maybe I just shouldn't watch trailers or look at soundtrack listings of any kind. <laughs> that might be a lesson for me, but. I guess what keeps this from being higher on the list is that it just doesn't surprise me as much as I had hoped in terms of how things play out. And 
again, I'm not asking for frogs to fall out of the sky in every PTA movie or anything, but this is kind of more of a straightforward days and confused hangout coming of age story that I do think works more often than it doesn't. I just also can't deny the fact that I didn't feel amazed by everything in the film. Uh, and it's not fair to compare this to his other work because they're all very different experiences too. But this was the, uh, I, th- I think one of the first things I texted to Bill uh, after seeing it, I, I, I said, I think I have to just come to terms with the fact that I didn't fell, fall head over heels in love with a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. That's And that's okay. The <laughs> first know? time you watched uh, Inherent Vice, you didn't either, right? That's true. That's very true. And now it's my favorite. So <laughs> I don't know how that happened. I, well, actually, I do know how that happened. I discovered edibles um, and listened to a podcast that talked about it minute by minute. <laughs> and when you do that with really smart um, film writers and podcasters of, of the like, um, yeah, it was Oh my gosh, the name of the podcast is escaping me. But it's the same one. You can find it under the feed for one heat minute. Uh, I think that's how that all went down. It was just called Increment Vice. That's right. It's just called Increment Vice, hosted by Travis Woods. And uh, yeah, anyway, it's a great podcast. But uh, yeah, no, as, as, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the scenes between the talent agent and uh, once Bradley Cooper as John Peters shows up, the, those are some of the, among the best moments of the year for me. And there's some great use of music, both with the needle drops and Johnny Greenwood's more subtle contributions this time around with his score. Um, and, and not enough can be said. I mean, the, the, the acting here from the two leads in their debut performances, they're great. And I was just kind of like, enjoying watching them together in their own charming way. Uh, I'm not going to harp on some of the responses or even my own quibble involving John Michael Higgins character. And uh, that's also a conversation I want to have with Patrick after he sees the film. But I, again, I don't like that that scene is in the film just because I don't know what it adds well, there's two moments, actually. I don't know what it really adds to the overall film. Uh, and people have had a very negative response to it, which I don't want to negate or deny. But again, I just didn't think it added anything interesting to the story and could have been left on the cutting room floor. But that's just me. Um, but yeah, this is this is a film that did make me feel a lot of joy in, throughout. And there's some really interesting choices from everybody involved and even if their parts are very small uh they still stand out but this is not a pta film i plan to like deconstruct or rewatch over and over and over again like inherent vice uh but it's at number 10 and that's pretty great for a movie that i do have issues with uh as a whole and yet at the same time there's no denying that it's beautifully shot beautifully acted uh great use of music throughout and Paul Thomas Anderson still was my favorite director regardless. Uh, but yeah, I I'm, I'm just still surprised by the, you know, the, the fact that some people are absolutely 100% in love with it the way they are, but uh, I'm, I'm not, 
yet here it is at number 10 licorice pizza get real so let's move on yeah my uh number nine you guys might be able to relate to this we all see so many movies and it's really cool when you see a movie and you realize I've never seen this before. And that happened to me with my number nine pick red rocket, hmm. which uh, thank you. Um, Chicago film critics uh, association festival. Uh, they, they screened that at the music box and what an interesting film, but really all of Sean Baker's films have been so interesting. He he's he's with just three films, at least three films I've seen, he's really has such a distinctive voice. And it's also if you've seen the Florida project, it interested me that uh while the lead in the Florida project is a is a, a little small girl and the lead in this is a porn star, personality wise they seem to have a lot in common. Um, the lead is played by uh, Simon Rex, who is not known for anything particularly good, but somehow he has found a role or the role has found him wherein the certain aspects of his personality really complement this truly bizarre lead character as, as, uh, I mentioned when I, when I talked about the film earlier, he is a, a porn star and he's returning to his uh, small Texas town. And the movie is really good at kind of really setting up this environment on what it's like to live in kind of nowhere, Texas. And, you know, as you look at all the other characters in the film, they all seem very trapped and like, you know, r- real people. And here's this weird guy who's got a lot of schemes and he figures because he was a star quote unquote, that uh, he could basically work it over on everyone else in the town. And to an extent he does, but it starts to become a film really about, um, about dashed dreams about what happens when you have this kind of unbridled ambition but you're kind of a shit and you don't work well with other people. And so it becomes this uh, story of him trying to uh, groom this uh, underage girl who works at a donut shop on how to become uh, a porn star herself. And what's interesting about the film and what, what really appeals to me about the film is the way I described it, I feel like it sounds very dark and subject matter wise, it is pretty dark. The whole thing kind of plays as comedy, though. And that's a really interesting tension that the movie successfully walks the line of between these uh, really strange and disturbing characters and yet just this light tone of, uh, of successful comedy that... Uh, that I puts it in its own little place. I also kind of liked that he, that the uh, end of it kind of also echoes the end of uh, Florida project. That's a good point for sure. Patrick, did you catch up with red, red rocket? Yeah. I didn't think it was very good. Um, it's, it's rude, but it's not funny. And uh, I didn't find the character that interesting because he's very one note and um it's 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 one of those things for me where it's not necessarily like 
you can't have movies about quote unquote unlikable characters or despicable characters, but I just don't, he's just like a piece of shit in the way a lot of people are pieces of shit. And I didn't, I didn't find him interesting. Um, I didn't find its insights about the world of porn, uh, particularly interesting or well thought. And, uh, yeah, I just didn't care for it. Yeah. And I would be in the middle of both of you and thinking, I liked some things about it and other things. I was just kind of like, eh, it's also too long. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Are you a big fan of his other works? Yeah. I, I love, I love Tangerine, but I'm almost yeah. afraid to go back to it now because now there have been two other movies in a row where I feel like um, it feels like he just has this, morbid fascination with just trashiness and in a way that is what I'm feeling that he he feels outside of it as opposed to uh, you know, other filmmakers who can celebrate it and relate to it. Like there's something about specifically red rocket and to an extent Florida project that feels like he's gawking at it in a way that's very irritating to me. Um, So it almost makes Mm -hmm. me think like if also tangerine was a movie that was very different before the two lead actors, uh, got involved and when they looked at the script and they were like, oh no, no, this should be a comedy and like, it was a movie that had a lot of uh, input from them um, and then apparently subsequently like, <laughs> their careers went nowhere because uh, you know uh, despite the fact that they kind of made that movie what it is, there was some bad blood between them and Sean Baker in a way that makes me also like, oh, ugh, that's gross but uh, I don't know the full story of that so I can't, I shouldn't really get into that, but anyway um, every film of his I've liked less than the previous one in a way that just makes me think, eh, I'm done with Sean Baker. I might be. That's kind of it's more of a question mark after Red Rocket. I know a lot of people do love it. I know a lot of people, you know, have put it on their list, and I respect that choice. I think for me personally, uh, I struggled <laughs> with and I think you're supposed to with that character. You there's know. a lot. There's a lot with this film and this this character, and it's it's almost. And it's, I'm not saying it's a movie at this level, but it's kind of like if you watch Mike Lee's Naked, mm. and uh, the Johnny character is just such a horror. But again, there's just something about him where you kind of can't look away, and and that that's how I felt uh, to a to a lesser extent with this one. But also, uh, I, I do agree, Patrick, that. Uh, he, he might have this kind of, he might be looking at the community as an outsider because there is a lot of red state, blue state subtext going on here. Oh, yeah. Whereas he's very critical of his lead character, he seems also just as critical of the community itself. Yeah. I, I think I would agree with that and just like inserting trips of, or, or clips of Trump throughout i don't i was just like uh, i don't know if you, I, I realize it's a you know it's taking place at that around that time but i don't know if it was necessary really well i, th- yeah, I think it works like with thematically mm-hmm. if if you look at you know somebody from a sleazy background yeah, trying to basically impose his will on a large number of people you know there is that analogy to be made but you know it's not a perfect one yeah The other thing about it is it's so long for a movie that is kind of, he's a static character. um, And I kind of knew 
who he was and how I felt about him five minutes in. And then, you know, an hour and five minutes in, nothing had changed about that. Um, I didn't feel like I grew to understand him more. And I didn't, you know, it, he, Sean Baker does this thing where he reveals little details about his past and, you know, how he broke up with his wife and, and what happened and, and, and the nature of his claims of, you know, how he was on top or things like that. But none of those are inherently, um, I didn't find any of those reveals particularly illuminating or insightful. And yeah, for a movie to go over two hours and to be that one note and for that one note to be something I don't really care for um, really made it uh, a, a struggle to watch through. I mean, you all, you compared it to Naked. Naked's another movie I feel the exact same way about. I think that movie sucks. So <laughs> um, that it might be a me thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 and I know this happens and you know, the, the, the grooming of strawberry more or less is, is meant to be really gross and kind of creepy. And yeah, you know, it's at the same time, it's like, you're supposed to feel for her and kind of go, Oh, what he's doing is really wrong. And yet at the same time, like Baker decides to have, you know, her completely nude at the piano at one point, it just, there's little things that kind of rub me the wrong way more than in his other work. But at the same time, I can't deny, I did laugh at certain things and thought certain moments really were interesting, including that ending. I, I was like, I don't know. The first time I saw it, I was like, I don't know how to feel about that final shot. That was weird. I don't know. <laughs> but more I sat with it, I was like, okay, I kind of liked it. I kind of liked the, the overall experience even though it does have big problems and it's and it is too long so uh let's move on to number nine uh from patrick right oh yeah absolutely so summer of soul is a movie that is an actively bad documentary um oh uh, one example of this is you both talked about it and you mentioned things that are absolutely not true like for example the subtitle of this film is when the revolution could not be televised the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival was televised. It aired on public TV every night. Um, so there, so like literally right there, like this is an example of a movie doing extremely bad history. And the reason it does that extremely bad history is because it does one of the most irritating things a documentary could do, which is a lot of documentaries now have the equivalent of at the end of a YouTube video when the YouTuber goes, make sure to like, subscribe, hit that bell. And they're like, they're basically giving you the whole spiel of this is how the algorithm works and to keep up engagement. If you want to help me out, you have to do these things. Um, and documentaries do this too. And the way they do that is they sell themselves as being like this vital unearthing of forgotten past. And what they do is they tell you, the audience, you are now on in an in crowd because you know this thing that other people don't know. And, and isn't it, and, and they're trying to pump up their own importance of documentary uh, where it's like, thank God this documentary now exists um, and that people can finally see. And it's like within the movie itself, it's congratulating itself. Um, the reason this stuff had never been seen is not because nobody cared. In fact, it's been a decades long struggle for any movie to get made. There's a lot of rights issues and the guy who put together the whole thing um, just it. Every time someone tried to put together something with the Harlem Cultural Festival from 1969, he eventually just couldn't get the deal to come together. He His terms were unreasonable or whatever, and it didn't happen. Um, and then at a certain point, he died, and then suddenly it became possible. <laughs> so 
So this is a movie that is actively bad history. Um, Harlem Cultural Festival is not a single concert. Uh, it took place over the series of a week. That's something you wouldn't know unless you like read between the lines in a single moment or interview. They try to they kind of present it as if it all happened over one crazy day, which isn't true. Um, there's a lot of stuff about this movie that sucks. All of the talking head stuff, like you're just randomly getting a story about like the first uh, you know college in Georgia to be integrated or whatever, like that has nothing to do with anything. Um, I think all of that stuff is terrible. And I think Questlove is an actively bad director um, <laughs> uh, as far as the guy who put together this movie, um, except for one thing. I will give him endless credit. He, uh, unlike someone who hates film like Peter Jackson, did not fuck with any of the footage. The footage is in its original aspect ratio. It has not been cleaned up. It has not been digitally altered. He didn't crop it for 16 by nine. Um, everything you see is the way it was shot, which is shot in, you know, four, three, because it was shot for television because it again, aired on television. So like, that is something that a lot of filmmakers, even, uh, documentary filmmakers who should know better, um, like get wrong. Like, I think a movie, I think a documentary series that is absolutely spectacular, but still does this in a way that really, really negatively affects it is that OJ Simpson documentary series. Um, that's one that is like, this is literally a documentary about the most important televised event of the nineties. And they crop all of the fucking footage from the, from the trial into mm. 16 by nine. Um, it's terrible. People shouldn't do that. Um, Questlove doesn't do that. So big thumbs up to Questlove for that. Uh, also, I do like that Questlove uh, spends a little more time on the drummers than, <laughs> than any other musician. He really does give <laughs> the drummers specifically their due. So cool for him on that. But other than that, this is a movie that is, spectacular only because it is like all of the best musical artists of its era, all giving excellent performances of absolutely great music. Um, so like it's, it's the thing where this would be the greatest film of the year. No question the head and shoulders above everything else. If it was sort of just like a Woodstock sort of a thing where there was no talking heads, there was no interviews, there's no narration, um, no stock footage. It's just show me what you got. Uh, if you cut out every single clip of someone uh, talking about, you know, uh, what Harlem was like at the day or whatever, then you could probably have included another Chambers Brothers song. And guess what? I could do any number of ways to learn what Harlem was like back then. There's only one way I can watch the Chamber Brothers <laughs> perform at the Harlem Cultural Festival, and it's a fucking concert film. So um, that said, like, just the music in this is the greatest, and I cried, like, four times while watching yeah. it because, like, you know. Fly in the Family Stone has that effect on me. And, you know, like there's a lot of unexpected shit, like Mom's Mabel. I didn't expect to see Mom's Mabel. And Mom's Mabel pops up for like 10 seconds or whatever. I got so excited. And, you know, Herbie Mann has a little bit of appearance. I'm like, yeah, I love Herbie Mann. And, you know, obviously the Staples singers are spectacular. Nina Simone, Mahalia Jackson, you know, like there's so many amazing performers in this movie. And all of that is so powerful. It overwhelms the really shitty stuff in the movie. So, Summer of Soul is my number nine because of the music in it. Um, it could have been my number one, but it wasn't. And then my number nine top ten, uh, my, my number nine new watch uh, of the year was Playtime by Jacques Tati. Uh, I got high. I went I went to the music box. I watched Playtime, and I was more depressed than I've ever been in my life. Um, it made me understand things about uh, how society works, about how cities work, Uh um, as sort of these machines to uh, crush ambition and capital out of individuals. And 
Uh, it is one of the most jaw-dropping cinematic achievements in history. The the logistics of how that set those sets were built on massive studio and how nothing in that movie, um, almost nothing in that movie, is shot on location. It's just an astounding work, and it is so depressing, and it's kind of almost not funny because it's so depressing. But like, there's a lot of comedies that get a lot of credit for their social satire or whatever, and that stuff actually sucks. Uh, it's really hard to be uh, to make coherent uh, points uh, in the context of a comedy, and Jacques Tati just does an amazing job at it. Um, after French Dispatch, I went home and I watched um, Jira Hulot's Holiday, and that's another film that uh, has a lot of interesting insights into sort of social proprieties and manners and sort of the uh, cruft of human interaction that gets in the way of individuals uh, connecting and things like that. And I think Jacques Tati is brilliant. And this was my first uh, ever film of his I'd ever seen. Um, and to see it on the big screen, a movie that uh, has so many wide shots where there are so many things going on um, in every part of the frame. And again, it's just like, this is the kind of movie that you could never make if you are making movies, understanding that everyone's going to be watching them at home. Um, I was totally blown away by Playtime, uh, as depressed as I was and being high, it felt like it was like five hours long. <laughs> that was, and that was maybe a bit of a bad mistake. But other than that, like Playtime fucking rips. So yeah, Jock Tati's Playtime is my number nine, uh, new film of the year. Whoa. I got to discover some more. I love Tati. Playtime. It's one of my favorites. And I'm so glad you got to see it on the big screen because I think that is, one of the key films that loses more in translation when you don't see it on the big screen than, than most. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I would really, I mean, I think I would appreciate it and respect it, but I don't think I would love it or um, have such an intense emotional reaction to it if it wasn't on the movie theater screen. Yeah. And I, I agree with a lot of the things you said about summer of soul and including like there were moments where even, you know, Sly and the Family Stone are playing and then suddenly cuts to someone saying, weren't Sly and the Family Stone great? <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> no, you don't need to cut to that. I want to just see the music. Maybe well, kind can... of... Oh, go ahead. What kind of weirded me out as I was watching that because it, it wasn't clear about it is it's I slowly began to realize that it never became night. So that was kind of my clue in that this was not one show, but um, I was just like, okay, what's the big, you know, uh, the big finale going to be when the, the sun goes down and like it, Oh, it never happened It's daytime the entire time. Yeah. That's a good point too. <laughs> yeah. Th those little things like that take away. I, I almost wish he would release a, a different version of it with just the performances. I believe there has been discussion that an extended version or, or maybe a, a Blu-ray with a lot of deleted scenes will be at a, at a certain point released. So that would be cool.
Speaking of getting high, <laughs> number nine is the Green Knight. And uh, I, I'm not going to have a whole lot to say about it because I, I know most people have seen it and many have hated it. A lot of people found it dull and simply do not connect with the way David Lowry tells stories. Uh, and it, it did take me a couple of viewings to warm up to Ghost Story. But upon first viewing in a theater for the first time in a long time, while on an edible, I was kind of entranced by the Green Knight. I thought it was stunning to look at. I didn't always understand what they were saying. So I do need to rewatch it at home with subtitles on. I think that's kind of necessary to decide officially how I feel about it. But I think Dev Patel is a stunning screen presence in every shot. I was just kind of like, God, he's gorgeous. Um, and <laughs> I loved all the weird detours and interactions he has on his journey. I know a lot of people were, weren't uh, enthralled by essentially what he's going through from beginning to end, but I was kind of mesmerized by this whole thing. I mean, I kind of expected what happens in the last act to happen the way it did. Um, I, I still smiled at the very final moment and line from, from the green Knight himself, but it's like, I, but at the same time in my mind, I'm like going, you're doing last temptation of Christ, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and I just kind of felt that as I'm watching it, but it didn't bother me. I, you know, and I, I don't think Laurie is like outright trying to say that, the, you know, that Dev Patel's character is Jesus or something, you know, but many scholars over the centuries have kind of compared these mythologies and, 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 the, and the characters and situations and symbols to, to elements of Christian theology. So it, it makes sense if you want to gleam that, if you, if you want to ma map that onto the film, that's fine. Um, it's just one of those, I kind of walked into it going, I don't think I'm going to, this is my jam really in general. I'm not into fantasy and these types of films. So I guess it was really just being high and taking in all the visuals and uh, letting it wash over me as opposed to fighting it. Uh, and, and I just really, really enjoyed the whole experience. Um, and the audience reaction to seeing come at one point was one of the highlights of 2021 for me. Uh, I wouldn't say everybody in the audience reacted to it, but certainly the people in front of me would just, just went, Oh, Oh, <laughs> um so i that was that was a high, i think it was also just like i hadn't been to the music box in a, a long time uh and i don't know it was it just felt right uh maybe if i watch it again it will go down uh similar to similarly to what happened with me and Titan. um but i don't know i still i still feel a lot about this film in general as a, as a visual feast uh so i you know I, I would recommend checking it out in, even if it's not your, the, the type of thing, you know, more no, normally go for. So, you know, it's really funny. I also got high and went to the music box to see the green Knight, and I caught the whole Christmas feast and the contest. And then I passed out and then <laughs> I woke up during the whole last temptation of Christ part. And I was like, huh, I don't think I caught all of that. And I sort of walked away going, you know, I can't even really form an opinion. Um, I think it was kind of cool, but I just I just feel like I missed out too much because I fell asleep in the movie theater. So uh, I actually I rented it uh, uh, about a month ago 
Um, and I watched it at home with subtitles, totally sober. And I love the stuff with the Christmas feast. And I love the last temptation of Christ. And then that whole hour in the middle that I missed in theaters, I don't understand why any of it exists. None of it meant anything to me. And it was all super boring. Hmm. And even by the time, and like I, even by the time it kicked back in into the last temptation of Christ stretch that is actually like interesting and moving. I just, I just resented the movie because I had to sit through an hour of like just random episodes where I didn't care what was happening. So it turns out the best way to watch it is to fall asleep for the for an hour in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> well, Uncle Joe actually re- recommends that for Memoria, which is interesting. Yeah. Well, he's actually said like if you fall asleep at one point, it's okay. <laughs> I watched uh, I watched an interview with Simon Liang about his uh, film that came out this year, Days, and he says, you know, at a certain point, if you want to just close your eyes and or like do something else during a scene, that's totally fine by me. And I was like, oh, that's good. That made me feel less bad about like just messing around on the internet uh, after like minute six of someone washed vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that happens. And I, I can understand that reaction to The Green Knight. I just felt differently. Uh, as, a, as sure. I was watching it, I just thought it was cool. <laughs> I don't know, sure, like sure. The, the scene with the, all those giants wandering around. I, I had no idea what it was about or why they were there, but it looked cool though. Yeah, I kind of got connected to something else in the movie because it was such a a, a, a striking visual. Hmm. Yeah, striking visuals throughout. Not sure what they all mean, but that's okay. Better than a ghost story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, we're moving forward. What is your number eight pick, Brad? My number eight is The Tragedy of Macbeth. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And this, of course, it's Macbeth, so that helps. But as as a big fan of the play, I've seen a lot of the film versions, and I do think this is one of the better ones. Uh, Patrick, you will appreciate this is a movie that is in uh, full screen. Hell yeah. Yeah, it is, it is uh, black and white. And in addition to just the greatness of the material, the way uh, this is filmed really complements everything. It's um, pretty expressionistic. And I feel like what uh, Joel Cohn was was doing was looking not, looking at Orson Welles's films and looking not just at Orson Welles's version of Macbeth, but also his Othello and his Chimes at Midnight, and kind of taking on this incredibly uh, stylized way to uh, film it. It was all it was all on a set. Uh, even the things that look like they're outdoors are not outdoors. A lot of fog, a lot of extreme angles. And because this is such, um, you know, the material uh, deals with, you know, prophecies and witches and magic and, and all that, the, the way it, it leaves realism benefits the text, which is always powerful. But then when you have two amazing actors delivering most of it, you've really got something. Denzel Washington interprets Macbeth extremely uh, cerebrally. He's a quieter Macbeth. He's an older Macbeth than I think we've ever seen. And that puts kind of a different spin on how 
we look at the story, but he's got such power in his stillness that, you know, and he's always been a, a great actor, but I feel like he's able to show parts of, of his uh, acting chops that we haven't seen previously. Uh, same with uh, Frances McDormand. She is wonderful as Lady Macbeth. She, you know, just due to the role, she, her role is much more uh, broad and out there, but uh, it's it's great. And all the supporting actors are, are on point and it uses the original Shakespearean language. So you have to kind of be used to that uh, to fully... Uh, to fully appreciate it, but it, 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 the, there's enough visual cues that I think it uh, it lets you follow, even if you're not used to the language. But I was I was just thrilled. I thought this was a great version of Macbeth. You know, it's funny. I before I saw West Side Story, I just the first time I saw the trailer for Macbeth, uh, I saw it on you know on the big screen, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, Denzel Washington, my favorite movie star of all time. Like I, at some point I had heard Jill Cohen was doing Macbeth and I'm like, yeah, whatever. Didn't someone do Macbeth just a couple years ago with Michael Fassbender and who cares? And then I saw the trailer and I'm like, oh my God, there's nothing in the world that's going to keep me from fucking seeing this on the big screen. And then Omicron hit and I go, okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so unfortunately I've not seen this yet, but I'm really excited to. And I do have to tell you, because uh, actually the Fassbender version of Macbeth was one of my least favorite versions. So I think this just beats that uh, in every way. Also, on Denzel Washington, it's really interesting because he seems now that he's going to transition into, you know, an older actor that's going to have a, a very different vibe than Denzel has had throughout the years. Excited to see it. I liked it. Um, I, I think watching it at home was not smart. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm going to watch it again. For on the big screen, if that's possible, we'll see. I don't know. Um, I, I mostly agree with everything you're saying. I just didn't feel overwhelmed or emotionally invested as much as I'd hoped in everything. I just, but uh, God, it's gorgeous. It's so stunning to look at. Um, and yeah, oh God, yeah. I just I'm I'm in awe of, the, of of it visually, of course, and the acting is great. Who plays the witch? Plural, the witches. I don't know her name, but she is one actress playing all three witches. Yes, and it, it's a really interesting interpretation of the witches. Uh, okay. She's seems like a witchist of some kind. Yeah, statistically, sure. it's probably Tilda Swinton. <laughs> <laughs> If there's an actor playing multiple witches, it's probably Tilda Swinton. I should also mention for people, because this is like the debut of Joel Cohen without his brother Ethan. Mm. And just so that people know, I don't think this is anything like any previous Cohen Brothers film. It doesn't, it doesn't have that Cohen Brothers vibe. I would agree with that too. Yeah. It's another I need to see. It's a, like a lot of films this year. Uh, I, I just probably need to watch it again and maybe I'll appreciate it more on, on another viewing, but it's definitely worth seeing for sure. Okay, Patrick, your turn. So my number eight is Come On, Come On by Mike Mills. Um, That's another I, one I need to see again. <laughs> Mike Mills movies, I, I have not seen Beginners actually, but 20th Century Women in this, they just feel like warm hugs. I just really love the act of watching them. 
Um, all the performances in this movie are so good. Joaquin Phoenix is great. Gabby Hoffman is absolutely oh, incredible. Good, good um, call. Yeah, she needs more more attention. She's great. Whatever I forget the name of the the kid, the actor who plays the kid, but he does a really good job. The uh, to Woody Norman, I guess, is uh, his name. Um, there's a real hard limit on, at least again, I have not seen Beginners, but on Come On, Come On and 20th Century Women, which is there's almost a certain flatness of meaning because Mike Mills has a habit of just having characters state what the movie is about and not in a necessarily didactic way, but he makes movies about characters who are actively struggling with ideas. And so there's sort of a hard limit on how much surprise can happen. Um, I feel like with, it's just one of those things where it's like within 10 minutes, I kind of understood um, everything. Come on, come on was going to be about and how it was going to go about it. And I loved every minute of it, but it was also just, there was no like great surprise moment. There was no moment where I'm like, oh gosh, I've never seen anything like this before. Uh, it is absolutely unbelievably gorgeous. Uh, I don't know who yes. shot it, but it's just it's just so incredible. The, the black and white cinematography is just unbelievable. Um, and I yeah, I I just really love this movie. Um, and it's I don't know if it's necessarily a thing I'll watch uh, again and again, but. Um, it is just every part of it is well done. And I do like uh, Mike Mills' sort of tempo and the way he sort of jumps from scene to scene. And then my number eight uh, new watch of the year uh, was The Tall Tea uh, by Bud Bedecker from 1957. Oh, yeah, Criterion, Criterion Channel did a, a little Ram Now Westerns uh, collection um, for a month. And uh, Bud Bedecker, former bullfighter turned filmmaker, um, directed all of these Westerns with uh, Randolph Scott as the lead. And they all kind of feel like just sort of variations of a theme. He is just kind of hitting the same things over and over again um, to the point where I struggled to figure which Bud Bedecker movie would end up on this list. Uh, I think Tall T just sort of takes the edge. But the thing they all have is they all have really great pace. They have an amazing plotting where you have all of these characters with all these different backstories and motivations um, sort of colliding with each other in believable but highly interesting multiple ways. Um, they don't uh, feel overly contrived, but at the same time, it's not just sort of a hangout movie. It's, they're very plot-driven. Um, there is something about Randolph Scott, uh, who is this very older, taciturn kind of figure, um, in that he, he feels sort of avuncular, like he feels almost like a father, uh, you know, a patriarchal, kind of figure um but there is just i across the board in these blood buttercup movies the thing that really captivates me is there is just this sort of thing that exists unspoken between the lines and there's this idea of what you're not seeing and what's not being shown and part of that is they're movies from the late 50s so they're still movies that are sort of operating under the haze code um they're really really dark and they're really vicious and they're really uh, the things that they imply about you know potential violence that can happen to characters and tragic backstories and like the tall t in particular uh a character is killed and thrown in a well and it never cuts to the person's body in the well but the fact that you see randolph scott look in the well and he and the fact that his face doesn't react you are it's fully incumbent on you as a viewer to imagine this like dead boy floating in a well and it's the most like <laughs> fucked up image i've ever seen in a movie and you don't see it it's just in my head um and 
there's a lot of stuff that with the way Bud Bedeker edits things where the things you don't see are more important than the things you do. And the, the things that are not outright spoken about a character's backstory um, are more important than the things that are. And the, the fact that he uses this to complicate morally um, these Randolph Scott characters who are almost boring in how just taciturn and I'm the good guy and I'm super competent and no matter what gunfighter comes to me, I'm a better gunfighter and I'm going to save the day. There's a version of this that's really boring, but because you are sort of left to imagine all of these terrible things about like what this person is actually like, it's actually super complicated. I watched a documentary about Bud Bedeker and um, hmm. it was sort of brought up that he was an in-between point, basically. Like he was this uh, transition point in between like a John Ford and a Sam Peckinpah. Uh, where uh, you he don't, you don't have the full blown violence and the um, sort of haze code breaking content of a Sam Peckinpah western, um, but you also but like it's implied and that implication um, is just so powerful and all these movies are super short and they're just so well done. Um, the Tall T Seven Men from Now those are my two favorites, but like you could watch any of those uh, and they're just great. Uh, so the Tall T was my number eight. Yeah, I should have given a special mention to Seven Men from Now as being one of my favorite discoveries. That's the only one I've seen. I need to see more because I was very impressed with Bagger. As soon as those left the Criterion channel, I bought a box set that has pretty much (laughs) all of them. So if you want to borrow that from me, uh, you can definitely watch more. Yeah. And again, usually around 70, 80 minutes long. Yeah. Not all not all movies need to be two and a half hours is all I'm going to say about 2021. I'm done. Uh, no. Um, my wait, where are we? <laughs> I've just completely lost my train eight. of thought. Number eight. OK, eight. yes. Number eight. Uh, I, I mentioned the. Uh, uh, the discovery of, you know, the year and, you know, kind of my. My my last pick for, or you know the uh the the actress from Anne at uh 13,000 feet I'll be mentioning again in a bit but there's another discovery for me and I believe you say her name is Renata Reenzva from the worst person in the world uh and yeah Joaquin Trier I think is how you say his name he has made uh, a couple of movies I've seen and enjoyed and definitely would put, you know, I would definitely recommend them, but I really felt, I felt hook, line and sinker for this film based on this is essentially almost like a coming of age movie in your thirties where you're still trying to figure out well, what, what do I really want out of life? And obviously I want to be in love, but am I going to be in love with the right person? And how long is that going to last? And it's just, a, it's just one of those feelings as I'm watching, I'm like, Oh, I know what this is like, because I've, I've been there. I understand this character and I understand what it's like to sometimes feel like the worst person in the world, <laughs> you know, cause we all do, we all do like go, Oh, but, you know, I did something horrible or I said something terrible to somebody. And now I feel like I'm the worst person in the world. But obviously she isn't. This is chronicling the four years in the life of Julie uh, as she's kind of, you know, looking for love and meaning in the modern world. And it's told in these 12 chapters, like like Brad mentioned. And 
yeah, she's embarking on relationships kind of around the same time, more or less with two very different men. Uh, But it's, it's ultimately about trying to discover yourself while falling in love and not losing your sense of self that, and, and Brad already mentioned that very memorable sequence. It reminded me of uh, kind of the sunnier side of a moment in Miranda July's the future involving the stopping of time. This one's a little bit more the flip side of that. Uh, And it's really stunning and it's really well executed. I think again, there's a certain screenplay choice that I won't give away because I don't, you haven't seen this yet, right? Patrick, I didn't think you did, right? Nope. Okay. So I won't, I won't go into great detail about the one quibble I have involving us. One of these men later in the film that I just kind of went, Hmm, that's kind of a cliche choice, but yet again, the scenes between them aren't, just that decision to, to have that character go down that route. Uh, I just kind of went, mm, all right, well, I should feel emotionally overwhelmed by it, but I wasn't. And yet they have an amazing scene of reconciliation. That's also up there with one of the best moments of the year. Uh, lots of really great dialogue, awkward interactions that feel also very grounded. It's never too precious or whimsical. It's just, I don't know. I think it's one of those great movies about being in your thirties and still not knowing what you want, whether that has to do with relationships or not. So I hope this gets a proper release. I hope everyone gets to see this. I found it very moving and entertaining. And uh, again, another stunning performance by uh, a lead actress here that I'm expecting to see more great things uh, in the future from. Yeah, she's amazing. For sure. Uh and I was, uh, the thing you're, you're referring to, which I won't mention, I was just impressed that that was handled without melodrama. Yes, that's a good point. No, you're right. We can move forward. Oh, I think that would be me then. Yes. For my number seven, which is a hero by one of my heroes, Iranian director Ashkar Farhadi, who I have... <laughs> Adored and loved ever since uh, a separation uh, back in 2011. And he's one of these guys that I, I see every time he has a film. I mean, it's, it's definitely going to be there because few directors capture are as humanist as Oscar Farhadi. He has such an understanding of people and how they interact and uh, a hero is no exception. It's about a, uh, a man who's in prison, uh, in prison for being in debt. And one of the things when you watch a Farhadi movie is that it's very steeped in Iranian culture. So you kind of have to uh, understand that various things that, would be, that we would understand would, would go down a certain way would go down a different way. In, in Iran. So uh, he's in, in jail, but he could be out of jail if the person he was in debt to uh, were ever to uh, forgive that debt. But he does get these little um, weekends off to uh, visit his son who uh, has a uh, speech issues and, uh, and see his family. And he finds a, uh, or no, actually his girlfriend finds a uh, purse full of gold coins. And this leads to 
a this becomes public and he becomes a hero of the title for uh, being the, the person who turned in the gold. But it becomes it's a little bit of, uh, you know, crimes and misdemeanors, because mm. we, we understand that this is a man who uh, is trying to do the right thing. He's trying to repay his debts. He's trying to do right by his family, but he doesn't quite know how to do it in a in a way that does not open him up to uh, moral failings. So while he wants to do what's right, he's certainly not above uh, telling some lies and misleading some people. And so you have kind of a um, an effect of uh, one, you know, one element affects the other, and soon everyone in this community is is kind of involved in whether he really is a hero or whether he's a fraud. And there's a commentary on uh, on how the media will build people up just to tear them back down. And it's again, it's it's never done just um, just for reasons of plot. It's all. You get to know all these people very well, especially uh, especially the lead. And uh, I, I found myself very involved with this character. And and the the film I'd most compare it to would actually be uh, the Bicycle Thief. Ah, okay. Because it, it also is both about a father son relationship, and also about you know the cost of what you might think are just. Small moral failings that uh, could build. At listening to you talk about it makes me feel yeah, it should be higher on my list. It's right now number twenty six. <laughs> Missed it by that much. Yes, I. Oh, this director. I need to see more. Like I haven't caught up with. Let's see. There's what the past uh, about Ellie and the salesman. Those are the three I need to see still. Well, they're they're all great. About uh, the past is a little more of a melodrama. Uh, the, the salesman is is wonderful. It's a little similar to to this one in tone, but the about Ellie is fascinating because it's Oscar Ferrati <laughs> doing a thriller. Ooh, okay, yeah, that is interesting to me because yeah, this this felt like in the same vein as a separation at times. Uh, especially when you know how the uh, the law operates very differently than you know kind of what mm-hmm. we're used to here obviously but it's just you're right that the bicycle thief com- comparison is very apt because you also you really do get involved with uh, again another incredibly flawed and imperfect human being who's trying to do good but you know, it's, it's also questionably selfish uh, in, in some ways. And you wonder how he's going to get out of this situation and the many factions and, and, and different people involved along the way. Uh, and they all affect him and, and, you know, making you question whether what they're all doing is right in the end. And they all seem to have appropriate responses at times to what he's doing. And, there's a couple of very memorable outbursts of, of, of violence that, you know, I mean, it's more of like just a couple of people fighting, but they're still very, uh, you know, expected in those circumstances. But it also wrecked me at times. I was, was very floored 
uh, again, by this, by the way, this director tells a story and yet keeping it very grounded in reality. And of course, with the fighting, like there are characters for whom that would have a more profound effect mm. than a, just, just anybody because of the circumstances that yeah. they're in. And the other thing for Hadi does here that that he always does is kind of the opposite of what what was the criticism on on Red Rocket, is he he is without judgment, he portrays various behaviors, and you can uh, you can make your decisions about them, but the way he he does his filmmaking is he doesn't do good guys and bad guys. Everybody is just so multifaceted and flawed and decent and it lets the viewer figure all that out instead of trying to impose anything exactly that's what i love about his work it really affects you in ways that aren't manipulative in any way it's 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 fantastic yeah i want to watch this one again too and i can't wait for you to see it patrick it's a great choice i would like to see it yeah what did you pick for number seven my number seven is No Sudden Move. It's a great script with a great cast and a great director. And it's not as good as Out of Sight, but it's almost as good as Out of Sight. And that's fucking phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and then there's always the moment in the uh, Steven Soderbergh's recent movies where you wait for the leftist message to sort of pop in. Um, <laughs> and, in and in this case, he actually does it in a way that I uh, enjoyed and mostly didn't find distracting. I mean, he isn't he doesn't sort of do this with disastrous results the way an Adam McKay does. But um, I find a lot of uh, recent Soderbergh movies when the leftist message pops up, I'm just sort of like, ah, oh, this just, this feels like you had to shoehorn it in. It doesn't feel like it came up naturally, but the uh, scene where um, uh, the scene where John Hand gets sort of paid off uh, with a bottle of whiskey um, is just so fucking phenomenal. And I think it's really funny. And I think it's very, uh, um, pointed and well-observed in, in the way that our uh, uh, government officials and politicians and stuff like uh, get lobbied uh, into just doing whatever corporations want them to do. But specifically, they get lobbied for fucking peanuts. Like if you look at the uh, money that senators and stuff take from, uh, from these uh, industries in order to um, ensure that no laws that help human beings uh, get past like the money they get given is so fucking little and so that moment where he just like takes a little 80 dollar bottle of whiskey and he's like oh my goodness this day just went from good to great is so fucking funny to me <laughs> um so and no sudden move just it's really fucking cool i like it a lot um and then my number seven uh first time watch was uh, good morning by yasujiro ozu um, I like yasujiro ozu's color films like more i think i just i think it's something in his work just clicks a lot better for me in color. Um, I, you, you start seeing Yasujiro Ozu movies and you, I, at least I got the feeling that I'm like, okay, I, I think he's a phenomenal, phenomenal director and I like the thing he does. So I will keep watching him do that thing over and over, but I don't know if he has the ability to surprise me really. And then good morning came out and, there's just it's just so funny in a way that I would never expect from the director of uh you know Tokyo Story and you know Tokyo Twilight and you know late spring things like this um and just like you know you don't expect this guy to be the guy with all the fart jokes and the recurring gag about the kid shitting his pants but turns out <laughs> that's exactly the kind of guy he is 
Um, and in his movies, the thing is the story is sort of being told in between the lines, uh, kind of like I talked about with Bud Bedecker. There's always just you kind of uh, the way that people interact with each other is frequently very rigid and uh, very built on manners. And you kind of have to interpret uh, the sort of emotional toll that anyone is taking. Um, and the way this does that uh, sort of ironically, um, the way that uh, the kids go on strike and, and the humor that comes from the fact that these kids are just absolutely refusing to do the thing that all other people are doing and um, how the kids get what they want and no one else does. <laughs> um, like, it's fucking great. Uh, I really love Good Morning a lot. And so if you are on your little Ozu journey and you're finding uh, that you are sort of maybe petering out on seeing the same story about the, uh, you know, uh, child who doesn't want to be married but gets married for the sake of their parent or whatever, uh, go ahead and pop on Good Morning and see a whole different side of him. And um, before we started recording, Brad uh, recommended uh, I See I Was Born But, and this is the movie that after I saw this and looked up that it was a semi-remake of his silent film I Was Born But, I was like, I got to see that movie. So I'm excited to see that too uh, in 2022. Yeah, the the early silent Ozu films have a have a bit of a different, more comedic tone uh, than the later ones. Although, yeah, good morning, good morning is the exception there with all the fart jokes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I need to see more Ozu for sure, and it's very funny that uh, I think for one Christmas, uh, Bill sent me a uh, Blu-ray of Tokyo Story. And then for this past Christmas, Patrick was kind enough to send me an autumn afternoon. I sent you an autumn afternoon. Bill sent me an autumn afternoon. <laughs> that would have been so, weird if I sent Bill an autumn afternoon. <laughs> you want you know you want to know it's, you know what you want to know it's weirder. Uh, you sent me Shatter Dead on Blu-ray. I sent Bill Shatter Dead on Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's wild. Great yeah. minds think alike. It's very strange. Yeah. What's your strange. number seven, Jim? What is my number seven? It's uh, another film with a long title that not very many people know about. But, ooh, it's a late entry. It's one that I watched within the past couple of days. It's called Preparations to Be Together for an Unknown Period of Time. It's, uh, I believe, Hungarian um, and very tender yet very unsettling and it's about i would say the anxiety of feeling love and not being able to actually have it fully come into fruition the way it does in your mind and you know like the the setup to this movie it's like check 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 for jim there's a, a neurosurgeon as a lead character there's unrequited love and there's trips to the therapist. So it's like, there you go. Hashtag gym film right there. That's all you need. So if you're making a movie and you want to appeal to me, feel free to include those three things. Uh, but it is also just a, a, an interesting, intimate journey with our lead character here. Uh, she has had a successful career in um the United States as a neurosurgeon, but she impulsively kind of decides to return home to Hungary in pursuit of the man of her dreams, even though they kind of only really had one intimate night together when he 
visited the States for a medical conference that they both went to. Uh, but she finds and sort of confronts him in Budapest and he claims they've never even met before. So, Hmm, that seems strange. <laughs> so, you know, p- part of her wants to leave and just go back to her life in the U S and then suddenly she goes, Hmm, no, I'm going to establish a whole new life, work at the same hospital. He does rent a pretty crappy apartment and just, you know, essentially stalk this person more or less. Um, But she's also sort of doubting her perception of reality and what she's feeling. And that's kind of what this film is about is it's just like how love changes our perceptions of the world, uh, how we lose our sense of self in, in ways that are exciting and terrifying at the same time. And hey, you can also be a brain surgeon, but you can't understand your own brain. Oh, so you know it's 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 a really tonally it's it's more on like I mentioned unnerving and unsettling because you're not sure how far she's willing to go and you know how is she basically creating some sort of deep psychological damage by doing all of this or is there really something going on? between these two people and I'll, I'll let you discover that on your own. This is playing on the criterion channel currently. I hope, and I believe it still is uh, Natasha stork is the lead. And also another new discovery. Um, I just got swept up in the 90 minutes of this mood piece. And I have to thank uh, critic and writer uh, Mariah Gates for turning me on to this because this was hers number one choice. Uh, and I plan to go back to this again in the future. It's one of those interesting movies about uncertainty and love that I was very much in- entranced by. So please seek this out. It's uh, I-, I believe it's a debut film and it's called preparations to be together for an unknown period of time. The end. Well, that leads us to, Number six mm-hmm, mm-hmm. starts the uh, the depressing portion of my list. Oh, uh, I've been talking about it before, and I'm t- going to talk about it again. The uh, debut from uh, Fran Kron's Mass. And before I was uh, mostly talking about the acting, but I do want to discuss what it's about. Even though the film takes a little bit to get there, so this is a, a minor. Spoiler, but it is what the film is about. Um, These two couples uh, meet in the basement of a church, and clearly there's a lot of tension between them. And this meeting had been very formally arranged uh, by outsiders, and there's a lot of delicacy to it. And as it turns out, uh, the son of uh, one of the couples uh, was a, a school shooter, and killed a number of his classmates, including the son of uh, the other couple. So this is, as I mentioned, a, uh, a four-actor piece. And if you know, it, it, it's not based on a play, but it looks like it could be. If you, uh, oh yeah, if you appreciate that kind of theatrical uh, structure, one room. Uh, a few actors, a lot of, you know, nothing fancy going on directorially. It's just like focusing on the acting, focusing 
on the writing because it, it's really exploring like what this incident means to these two couple couples, what it means to uh, obviously have to deal with the tragedy, the anger of being a victim of this crime. But then it's even more complex when you think what it must be like to be the parents of the person who perpetrated the crime. And it, it really asks a lot of questions, like how could this happen? What could cause, you know, and the, 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 the parents of, of the shooter were like, they, they felt like that they couldn't have known, but the other set of parents like, well, couldn't you have, you know, what, what really causes this? What were the, what were the signals? What could you have been looking for? It deals with a lot of uh, nature versus nurture issues and very emotional way. It just digs so deep into this conversation, which is so important for all of us to have it have because somehow this just keeps happening in our country and we seem to be refusing to do anything about it. So it's incredibly valuable that there's a film here that is going to explore this in an intimate and direct way. Yeah, that I, I, I pretty much agree with everything you said. It didn't make my list, but it's pretty powerful. I guess maybe I'm not sure what you can do cinematically with just four people in a room. And I think he, he certainly does his best and has some interesting angles at interesting times in which the characters are actually revealing what they're feeling. And, but really it is just a great ensemble acting their you know, <laughs> acting at their top of their game. So it's worth seeing just for that alone, but also a lot of the issues, like you mentioned, are, 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 are talked about. Um, I guess I, yeah, it's one of those, like a lot of titles that are kind of sitting in more in the middle of my list that, I bet upon a rewatch, I will think more strongly about uh, it was intense. It was a lot to process too. <laughs> a lot of those conversations. Yeah. Are heavy uh, to say the least, but great choice. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned it. Cause I think other people need to see it. Yeah. Thanks. Mm-hmm. 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 Patrick. My number six is passing. Um, uh, I think the Rebecca Hall did a great job. I think the cinematography is really fascinating. I think the way the black and white is utilized uh, to sort of eliminate skin hue and um, people's skin tones are lighter or darker depending on you know how they're shot and the situation um, and the feeling of what is and isn't in the frame uh, in, the, in the sort of academy ratio um, is really important. The script is really interesting. It, it takes a little bit to adjust to the uh, manner of dialogue, um, but I think the story that's told, um, you know, from the, it's like based off of like a 1929 novel or whatever. And it's, I think that story still really works well as a way of exploring a certain kind of um, racial dysphoria that uh, comes from uh, being aware of uh, people's uh, opinions of you and how fluid. Uh, that can be where Tessa Thompson is a, she, she sort of exists in this bubble um, because she is in Harlem in the twenties. And there is this sort of feeling of this um, black community that can be, you know, educated and is culturally exciting and is, 
and it's it's sort of the place to be and she wants to live in that world and she doesn't want to live in the world of what the rest of black America was experiencing in the twenties. And she wants, she doesn't want to deal with that. And she doesn't want to sort of confront the own colorism uh, that exists in her sort of idealized community. Um, she doesn't, you know, she wants to believe that she is treated well among her peers um, because she is intelligent and because she's capable and because she's interesting and a good person. Um, and then sort of the appearance of Ruth Mega, who is also light-skinned, but more light-skinned, and the way that everyone reacts to her sort of makes her reconsider her own position within her own community. Um, and then obviously there's the lesbian subtext between the two that is uh, largely, you know, implied that uh, yeah. mirrors the, uh, the, uh, the, the narrative point about them, you know, uh, as Black women passing as white women. And and uh, the sort of identities that you put on and take off or um, try to uh, push under the surface and what you decide, what card you decide to play when and how you navigate spaces. Um, I think this movie manages all that really, really well. And I like, I like the feel of it. I like that you're kind of just suspended in these emotions, um, especially towards the end of the movie. There's a lot of stuff where it's not really plot driven. You're just uh, kind of experiencing uh, Tessa Thompson's despair. Um, I just was very impressed by this movie. I honestly didn't think much of it going in. The trailer makes it look like it's going to be really kind of dull and didactic. And like, here's a movie about an issue, but an issue that took place in the past. And therefore it's a, you know, it's a story of race that we can feel good about because it's no longer the twenties. And instead it's mm. a really insightful movie about identity. Um, so I thought passing was really cool. Um, and then my number six, uh, first time watch, uh, for the year was the river from 1997 by Simon Liang, uh, a filmmaker who I'm a really big fan of, especially this, uh, early work of his, um, I did see his film that came out this year days and I was not interested in it. It was, I, I mean, the, the nature of that movie was he just sort of shot a bunch of footage and uh, eventually figured out how it would be put together and how these two characters would interact. And it was a sort of a long, years-long project where he didn't really have any idea or direction. And you watch it and you're like, yeah, that makes sense to me. This feels like it's undirected. Um, and The River is an example of like why Simon Liang was such an incredible filmmaker because of his narrative structure, because of how he tells stories. And just because these are really slow paced movies that have a lot of long shots and a lot of sort of ambiguous motion, uh, emotional stakes and um, don't necessarily uh, see you directly inside the character's heads. He's able through this arc um, of all these different uh, characters, this uh, family um, really explore um, a lot of uh, powerful ideas, I guess about uh um, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard for me to put a put a finger on it. I get other than just saying, like, parroting back the thing that all si Simon Liang movies are about, which is like loneliness and isolation. And in this case, um, and in the new film that he released this year, there's a there's an element of the way your body breaks down and betrays you, and sort of the alienating feeling of um, you know your health uh, turning against you in a really captivating way. Um, I think. I, I, it's just a beautiful story. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I was going to, I was going to reveal how it ends. Um, 
which I don't want to do because I do think people should seek out uh, this movie and uh, see it for themselves and allow that surprise to happen. Um, but I think the way it ends is very beautiful and it takes, uh, let's say, a subject matter that you would not expect uh, to be beautiful and moving and somehow manages to do so. Um, there was another film I saw this year for the first time that tried to do this as well and failed spectacularly. And I, if I told you the title of the movie, if you've seen it, you'll know. So I'm not, I'm not even going to do that. But at any rate, um, The River is another great Simon Liang uh, film. If you haven't seen his work from this era, the sort of pre-Goodbye Drag Goodbye Dragon Inn and everything that came before, uh, just all of them are worth seeing. The whole is worth seeing. Rebels of the Neon God, uh, you know, The River... Um, they're just they're just absolutely spectacular, beautiful movies. Um, and he is one of my all-time favorite filmmakers, even though I really don't have any interest in the stuff he's doing now. Wow. Yeah, I need to exp- and that's another director who I wouldn't mind exploring more of based on my love for Rebels of the Neon God. Yeah. I think that's damn near perfect. I, and and passing is one again it should be a little bit higher than just being in my top 40 but i certainly loved a lot about it i think the uh the cinematography sort of just contributes to the fluidity of time and space and identity and it's really gorgeously shot and it creates this wonderful snapshot of 1920s new york because yeah I, I walked into it going yeah this is just gonna be a, a movie about race but it's, it's, it's about a lot of things. It's about gender, motherhood, identity, class. Uh, you know, a yeah. lot of things are going on in that film. For sure. And I appreciated all of it, including the performances. And yeah, uh, Rebecca Hall <laughs> knocking it out of the park for a debut. In the same way, another actress that I'll, I'll talk about shortly for my pick uh, coming up in a little bit. Uh we're, okay, so we're at six. Number six. Okay. Six. Number six. Beep 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 beep. Yeah. Can can you guess what this one is? I sure can. Okay. Get, get back. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Once again, I'm kind of in the middle of. Uh, Brad's reaction and Patrick's reaction to that one. Things I loved about it. Things I was like, eh, yeah, this is too long and kind of boring in spots. But anyway, number six is drive my car. Uh, <laughs> I like how simple, you know, this, like this, the initial plot summary for this was just, oh, an aging widowed actor seeks a chauffeur after a tragedy. This actor turns to his go-to mechanic who ends up recommending a 20 year old driver. Despite their initial misgivings, a very special relationship develops between the two. Are you reading the Wikipedia synopsis, Jim? <laughs> I just, yeah, yeah. I found like a simple plot description for this and just kind of <laughs> laughed because I'm like, there's so much more. Yeah. There's so much more throughout this movie. Um, you know, and yes, it is partially about a, a grieving actor and his rather introverted driver, but it's um, uh, I think when you automatically put uncle Vanya into something, I'm automatically uh, enthralled because I just love that play. Uh, But 
it's it is more i guess until a certain point it's more in the background as being the play that he's currently working on and learning the lines of and directing other actors to perform in uh but that that whole scenario is really like later in the film like you you got you get 40 minutes or something until you get to the the title card popping up which was like huh wow okay that's a cool choice i'm all for it but you know this movie has a lot of subtlety going for it without uh, again we've talked about this a lot without veering into melodrama it's based on a short story from the same author as burning the great uh, Haruki Murakami. And it's a film that's making a lot of top 10 lists very high. And for good reason, I was very much involved. It contains uh, one of the better scenes of the year involving a a group of people, a very different people having dinner together. I just loved every interaction, every moment there, Uh, but it is, it is slow and you sort of have to just, um, let this experience, you know, intoxicate you as it goes on, because again, not a lot happens on the outside. A lot of it's happening internally, uh, and and it and it builds to a really beautiful conclusion. I think that's another reason why people are walking out of this feeling that kind of euphoria is just that it's kind of a stunning way to 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 wrap everything up, and it also has a lot to say about loss and why we feel the need to tell stories or act in stories or direct stories because we're looking to connect again with others in the world, even at a time when we're probably the most afraid to do that. Uh, and I just, I, I really love this lead actor. I'm, I'm looking forward to going back and checking out this director's other work in the same way I was with the director of burning as well. I was just kind of like, Oh, this is, this is definitely up my alley. I'm kind of in love with the, way this story is told and and there's not a lot of like outbursts in the way that you'd expect in, in, in a movie about this kind of subject matter but it becomes about the stories of these many characters uh, there's an uh i mean we don't see it on screen but there's an act of violence that i won't give away that i don't think was entirely necessary involving someone uh late in the game that you know eventually you know, he gets in trouble for, um, I don't know if that really felt like it belonged in this movie because everything else surrounding that is lacks any sort of violence or confrontation. But other than that, these three hours flew by for me and I was enthralled the whole time. I, I guess I don't know if it's an ultimate movie with a set thesis that I can sum up beautifully or anything but i just i just was enthralled and loved it and i think uh i think this is going to be the the winner of the best uh foreign language film at the oscars this year and rightfully so well jim you have provided the uh perfect segue into my number five which is also drive my car wow yeah like echo Everything you said, uh, this is this is pretty extraordinary. Um, I do want to get into a little of the plot because I do think uh, it has some really interesting things to say about grief and, and how we respond to it. Because 
we find out that, uh, and this is all before the credits, but as you said, the credits come 40 minutes in, is that, um, you know, the, the man, uh, director, uh, acclaimed director, uh, very in, lo- in love with his wife, but it turns out his wife is cheating on him and uh, soon thereafter uh, does pass away. And he finds himself directing a production of Uncle Vanya in which uh, one of the cast members is uh, the man she was cheating with. And so the subtlety of this film is how he responds to it. Yeah. And I think that the interaction between the director and, and the cast member is just fascinating because like his first reaction is, you know, completely, I, I can't have anything to do with this person. I want to undercut him in every way. It's a, it's an angry reaction, except the it's, it's, it's not like he expresses that anger outwardly because he's in this position as, as a director of the play. He, uh, he does it passive aggressively by basically casting him in a part he's completely inappropriate for, in the hopes that he'll quit. But this actor is also fascinated uh, by this director because it turns out they both view each other as kind of their living connection to the the dead woman that, that, that they love. And that's really fascinating. And it doesn't even begin to approach what happens when this driver comes into play. Because the car, uh, this uh, red car becomes the symbol of where he can escape to when he's feeling pressure, when he's feeling grief and, and all these emotions, his escape is to drive in this car. He even requested that his hotel be a, a great distance from the theater so he could spend the time in the car. But the theater <laughs> insists that he have a, has a driver who is this uh, young woman who at first is, is very quiet and businesslike and withdrawn, but we learn that she too is dealing with tragedy. And the movie just explores the way both of these people deal with the tragedies differently, the way they, they, find, uh, they find similarities in what they're going through and hopefully provide solutions to each other and how to move forward it's 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 really deep in 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 how far it goes into this idea of grief and yet still extremely entertaining still extremely involving and i and and also i should mention that i don't really know uncle vanya and my impression just from watching the film is that if you do know uncle vanya you might get an even richer deeper level to the film, but I mean, Jim, did you find that to be the case? Uncle Vanya. I did. I mean, it's, it's not, I don't, I haven't like studied it or anything, but I'm familiar with it. And certainly uh, Patrick and I share a love of Vanya on 42nd street. Uh, and, you know, t- t- he talked about it right at length <laughs> on the uh, Louis mall episode. And I, I certainly see the parallels to some degree, especially as it goes on and goes further forward and, you know, I'm, there's a lot of melancholy and grief in, in both Uncle Vanya and in the film itself, Drive My Car. But like, yeah, you're finding great parallels between like what the driver is going through and what he's going through. And I think that holds true with uh, 
finding parallels between Uncle Vanya and the film as well. And of course, the title is no accident because apparently this director has another movie called Norwegian Wood. So, <laughs> oh, it all comes together. Got a pattern. <laughs> well, they're both adapted from uh, Murakami. Norwegian Woods and Murakami uh, novel, and then this is adapted from a Murakami uh, short story. So it's the author who wrote the sort of uh, original material that the who has the Beatles obsession. Got it. Yeah. I need to read more from that writer. Norwegian Woods is a good novel. I enjoy it. Um, cool. My number five uh, is Pig. Um, I think that Pig is a sort of frustrating movie because um, it is... It, it feels like there is a lot of promise and it's uh, one of the few films I can say that I saw this year that is much too short. Um, mm -hmm. I would have mm -hmm. liked to see it explored in more detail. I love the world it takes place in. But at the same time, Pig is a movie specifically about subverting expectations and um, sort of alighting any kind of uh, easy uh, catharsis. It's a, it might be strong to call it a John Wick parody, but it is certainly a... <laughs> sort of knowing twist on the angry, tortured, grieving man kills a billion guys kind of movie um, that there are a lot of these days. Um, it's a it's a movie instead about sort of radical forgiveness and um, um, the, the potential in a uh, world that has no hope or future, the potential of um, sort of uh, individual connections and the limits of those as well. And um, it is a movie that, as it goes on, um, the ways it surprised you, you know, the first time you watch it, it's just sort of really fascinating to be consistently surprised by where all of this is going um, and what's going to happen next. And then the second time you see it, um, it's just a real treat to um, sort of see all of the nuances um, and stuff like that. So I thought Pig was a really cool movie um, and I really enjoyed um, and then my number five uh, first time watch is a gay porn uh, called L.A. Plays Itself from 1972. Um, I really enjoy uh, this podcast, Ask Anybody, uh, hosted by Elizabeth Purchell. And I apologize because I can't remember the other host's name, um, but it is about uh, 70s. I guess not exclusively 70s, but it is about gay hardcore films of the sort of pre-videotape era. Um, and gay hardcore is really interesting in that it is sort of the only real uh, gay film industry that existed back then. And so a lot of these films are the only chance you have of seeing true queer cinema. Um, so despite the fact that there's fucking in them, it doesn't, you know, uh, it's not a, 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 it's not a reason to uh, sort of discredit them or whatever. And L.A. Plays Itself is a movie that um, even when it first came out in the 70s, um, was immediately reacted to as a sort of a strong work of uh, transgressive art um, as much as it was a uh, sort of hot uh, porno with fisting in it. Um, uh, it's it, it's uh, about 50 minutes long, and uh, a good comparison point um, that you might have seen is uh, Kenneth Anger's Scorpio Rising, um, oh. in that it is uh, sort of tied up in homoerotic imagery and sadomasochism and things of this nature and um, urban environments and uh, montage and stuff. But it, um, it's, it's, but it, it kind of proceeds in a different way. Kenneth Anger's feel is a lot more sort of art directed and neatly put together. And this is sort of 
rougher and uh, more experimental and certainly more graphically explicit, even though at some point Scorpio Rising was brought up on insanity charges. There's really nothing uh, too uh, explicit in it. Whereas this has, you know, fisting in it. This has multiple uh, cum shots and, you know, this is, it's a gay porn. So um, you should know that going in. But uh, it is also an absolutely astounding um, work of art about uh, desire and um, sort of urban, I guess, the, it, it, it feels almost like an urban horror movie in ways. In there's an experimental um, kind of analog synth uh soundtrack um during the sections that take place in la um that are that is really sort of upsetting and strange and you overhear this conversation of this sort of like uh new gay man who just moved to la who's maybe a little naive getting picked up by someone who's basically gonna turn him into uh you know a, a, a prostitute and um you're getting all of these shots of la at the time and this sort of alienating music and it sort of builds into this uh, very beautiful and very sexy and very scary um, uh, sequence uh, where he's tied to the bed and, uh, you know, he's being dominated. And um, Fred Halstead, who is the director of the film, is also um, sort of the uh, the guy who is dominating him. And the first shot of his face in this movie is like the, the sexiest thing I've ever seen in a movie. It is so scary. And, like, it, the thing about this movie is, like, it actually really perfectly cinematically captures the uh the uh fear um and why fear is sexy and erotic and uh and like he looks like satan and he looks like a model at the same time it's unbelievable <laughs> the first time you see like a close-up of fred halston's face and so all this happens in the second half of the movie in the first half of the movie it's like these really bucolic beautiful uh nature shots in an LA park and this guy comes across a naked man in this uh sort of state park and they have this sort of tender love scene and it's, um, you know, it's a lot more gentle and it's a lot more sort of traditionally erotic. And I don't know, it's like, uh, it's hard to necessarily explain um, like what makes it art as opposed to porn or whatever, if you want to make those kinds of distinctions or whatever. And it's especially hard to sell anyone who isn't already attracted to <laughs> you know, footage of men having sex with each other to watch this movie, but they really should because it's just a phenomenal experimental film. Um, and I think probably uh, it does you good as a human being to uh, witness sex acts <laughs> that you're not used to. And it probably builds uh, empathy. Um, and uh, so even if you're straight, I, I would recommend you watch uh, LA Place itself. Um, this was this was a year where I watched a little bit more sort of gay hardcore from this era. At the music box, there was a double feature uh, by Arthur J. Brisson Jr., who he was director of sort of a straight, not straight in terms of heterosexual, but straight in terms of non-adult film, Buddies, which was the first uh, film to deal with the AIDS crisis that came out in the 80s. But he also directed hardcore films. And I saw Passing Strangers, which is sort of a very tender, beautiful romance between two people through... Uh, um, classified ads and uh, and uh, forbidden letters, which is a really interesting story about a relationship uh, between a man um, and his sort of ex-lover who's in prison and is about to get out and his feelings about that. And they're both really great uh, films in addition to being, again, uh, pornography. Um, I don't know, but it's uh, L.A. Plays itself is probably, if I had to point to one gay porn film to watch, <laughs> I would say, you know, 
Uh, LA Plays Itself is the one to see it. It's part, it's part of MoMA's permanent collection. Like the new, it just came out on Blu-ray and that transfer comes from MoMA. So like hmm. it is a film that like when it came out in New York, it was viewed by, you know, the same audiences who were viewing underground films of the era. It is, there's a very famous uh, Salvador Dali pull quote. <laughs> for I just the saw that. Yeah. That he, yeah, his pull quote is, new information for me, which is like, all right, Salvador Dali. <laughs> you know, that, that might have been the first time Salvador Dali saw fisting. Um, even the fisting in it is like, you know, it's it's a it's a movie that's shot on film and it's lit. And, you know, I think people think about porn now. They think about video content that's like super bright and lit. So every orifice and every detail is as visible as possible. So you see all the details and it's just maximum stimulation where you know, you might think I couldn't possibly see someone get fisted on film, but you could because it, the way it's shot is evocative and it's not overly graphic. And it is, um, again, it is a movie that is, it's, it, it's, it, it's a movie that's effective uh, if you're not necessarily into fisting or whatever, because it, it builds on your apprehension of what is going to happen. Um, anyway, it's, it's, I find I'm kind of talking in circles about it because it's hard to, uh, I do want to sort of sell people as hard as I can on uh, seeking out like the vinegar syndrome sort of Blu-ray set of these Fred Halstead movies. Uh, I also saw sex garage. I thought that was a pretty good movie too. And sex tool. I haven't watched yet, but that one's uh, supposed to be even better. Um, But uh, LA plays itself. is just like an absolute fucking classic movie. Um, And you should see it. I thought for sure it was a porn parody of Los Angeles Place itself. Well, Los Angeles Place itself took its name. The the documentary about location filming oh. in Los Angeles, it took its name from the porno. And there is clips uh, of the sort of bucolic uh, state park section of L.A. Place itself oh. in that documentary. So that was that was a direct reference to the to the porn. Yeah, that's great. My number five is is another directorial debut from a great actress by the name of Maggie Gyllenhaal. That would be the opening film of the Chicago Critics Film Festival, The Lost Daughter. Oh, no. Where is she? Oh, no. That's exactly what you're you're walking into that movie wondering. Hmm. A a daughter is lost. Well, we got to solve this mystery. It's not quite that. It's an adaptation of a novel. And uh, once again, we have another great ensemble doing their best and showcasing a, a character study of a woman who is a mother. And we, we, we see how she is in the past and then in the present she, uh, played by Olivia Coleman. She's trying to come to terms with the fact that she is quite imperfect and flawed. And maybe some would even label her to be kind of selfish in certain instances with decisions that she makes she seems to often resent motherhood in ways that uh you know we don't always see captured in film and i think that was what what gyllenhaal's intention was in telling this story and like i mentioned early earlier um jesse buckley plays olivia coleman in the past and we flash back quite often to seeing how she was uh early on when she first became a mom 
And uh, all the while she's kind of like juggling attraction to someone other than her husband. Uh, and in the present timeline, Olivia Coleman is also trying to, I, don't, I wouldn't say be a mentor for Dakota Johnson since she's a new mom herself, but uh, they're interacting. They're having, you know, in-depth conversations about uh, what it's like to be a mother. And they're all gathered at the same hotel and, and, and beach resort. So it's really all about people making mistakes and sometimes very cruel ones to, that affect other people. But um, I think uh, Hall again, shows a lot of empathy and, 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 and vulnerability here. Uh, it's, it's just, it's just shows you how messed up parenthood can be. One of those movies that makes me go, mm, yeah, I don't know if I want to ever become a parent because it, it looks like I could possibly have certain responses to the way kids are acting that I don't know. I, I, I think have happened to just about everyone in, in their lives, even if we're, you know, we don't realize that it probably happened to us as a kid. We, we certainly know that, uh, yeah, parents are human beings and they can be dicks. Uh, so this movie shows that it, um, kind of overwhelmed me in certain instances i would uh i would say that it's uh you know kind of low-key and it's it's not flashy there's not a whole lot of you know uh camera choices that are, are things that she does with the cinematography that i think are that stand out in the same way that uh, rebecca hall did with passing but um i i don't know i i this was an interesting year with films that you think are going to build up to something shocking, but they hold back. You know, there's like, you expect catharsis, you expect confrontation and violence and something melodramatic and intense to occur. Uh, that also holds true to some degree for something like the killing of two lovers. And initially you might go, eh, that's kind of anticlimactic. I was just hoping for something more, but I think it's really all about letting this cast shine in the way that they do. And again, showcase a lot of vulnerability. And sometimes that, that alone is enough to make it a great film for me. So I'm all about Maggie Gyllenhaal uh, and her future work as a director. I'm really excited to see where she goes from here. This is a fantastic debut. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So number four. I have been waiting almost a decade for my number four choice uh, because one of my favorite movies from the last decade uh, was Holy Motors. Uh oh, Carrix finally comes back with Annette, which is a very strange film, but for me, uh, an extremely <laughs> enjoyable one. It is first thing to note is that it's a rock opera, but the music is from a group I was unfamiliar with called Sparks, who I soon became more familiar with because Edgar Wright also did a documentary this year called The Sparks Brothers. Mm. This is a very imperfect uh, description of their music, but I would almost call them a, uh, a combination of meatloaf and craft work. If that sounds strange, the, the music is very strange, but it also fits in with what 
with with what Carrix is doing uh, with this film, it's uh, Adam Driver and Marianne Cotillard are a uh, a couple, a uh, a comedian and a singer. But Adam Driver's comedian is known as, is for being an aggressive comedian who confronts his audience. And all this is really heightened because a lot of it is done through song. Uh, even the uh, sex scenes are done through song. And so there's such a unique flavor to this, but it kind of goes to another level when we deal with uh, the offspring of this couple, uh, little Annette, who is, as a, as a baby, we notice is a puppet. And we're set right into the uncanny valley because... This puppet design is exactly the place to make you very uncomfortable, both as a baby and as the uh, she grows into a child who ends up being a world famous uh, world famous performer herself. But to kind of just also give an indication of why that doesn't even describe where this movie is going. You also have scenes of storms on ships. Just everything is big, operatic, and strange in this movie. And I know a lot of the people who I saw this with were kind of not on board with it, but, but it really, it really did work for me. I mean, the, the performances I thought were spot on. And even as I was, uncomfortable with this uh, puppet thing, the eventual resolution of why the child is portrayed as a puppet, I found extremely moving. I'm one of those people that didn't connect with it. Uh, I thought it was okay. I didn't hate it. I mm. That opening just got me so excited. I was just like, you mean oh. the opening that is just a retread of the best part of Holy Motors? <laughs> yes. That opening? The, yes. Like, the, thing that, the thing that he did like seven years ago? <laughs> Pretty much. Okay. Yeah, I was excited. I was like, okay, let's see where this goes. It is a retread, but I have to just musically, just as far as like uh, what Sparks is doing, that excited the hell out of me, the way it broke the fourth wall. Sure. And also... Sure. Also, that scene in Holy Motors that's the intermission with the accordion is also one of my all-time favorite scenes. And in fact, when uh, Al and I were doing the Director's Club, we used that music as our end for each show. Yeah, I I wish I'd felt a lot more emotion watching Annette because I do like Sparks now more than ever. Thanks to my friend Marissa, of course, and uh, that Edgar Wright documentary. I think they're pretty cool. In a lot of ways, they make very interesting music. The music of this did nothing for me. I was shocked. I was shocked. <laughs> I just kind of went, huh, th these songs are kind of repetitive and boring and not that interesting, really. Uh, and the idea actually is from Sparks itself. Yeah. I don't know. That's one that's uh, a lot of people do love it. And I, I respect that, 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 that opinion. And it's just one. I thought, I, 
I do think it was funny this came out the same year as the Sparks Brothers because it meant that people like me uh, who only knew a couple Sparks songs but weren't really familiar with the whole catalog now had sort of a working understanding of their career and the different kinds of music they make. And they felt more confident in saying that this is the worst fucking music Sparks has ever made. <laughs> like, I literally watched two hours of documentary. There's nothing but listening to Sparks music. And nothing in that documentary was as bad as the museum in Annette. <laughs> Somewhat advantaged because uh, Annette is literally the first Sparks music I ever heard. So I had nothing to compare it with. Fair enough. Fair enough. For yeah. me, it was the theme song to the uh, 1980s aerobic exploitation movie, Heavenly Bodies, uh, mm-hmm. Breaking Out of Prison. Great, great song. Breaking there was a single out of prison. prison, baby, breaking out of prison, girl. There's a single song in Annette as good as Breaking Out of Prison. Boy, would have changed my tune. But no, I, w- I wasn't personally a fan, but I do respect I do respect it that any movie that swings for the fences. Yeah, and I completely get get the the naysayers on this one. There's a lot of movies that I'm like, oh, everyone needs to see this. No, this isn't a movie that everyone needs to see. This is a movie <laughs> you kind of know whether you want to see it or not, or you you'll you'll know pretty soon once you start watching it. This is either going to be your thing or it won't because it, it's 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 pretty wild and in your face. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That, that that last scene is still a big question mark for me, and I wish I'd. I wish I was moved by it the way some people seem to be once yeah, something happens that, with that uh, the Annette character. Yeah, that made it all worthwhile for me. I think up, if that hadn't happened, I don't think it would have made my top 10. I would have still found it interesting and, and, and cool, but I thought that last scene uh, made the movie. Mm. Okay, Patrick, you're next. My number four is The Souvenir Part 2. Um, I am, I really, really liked the souvenir. And then when I rewatched the souvenir to prepare for this, I realized like, oh no, the souvenir is even way better than I thought it was. Now I probably, (laughs) if I were going to go back and make a list of that film came out, what, 2019? I think so. Yeah. No, that would probably be right at the top. Like that's probably my favorite film of that year. I think the, the original souvenir is just an absolutely astonishing work that is, uh, just so complete in its vision and in its aesthetic and the story it's telling and how it's willing to tell it. Um, I think that, that first movie is so good. And when I heard they're doing a part two, my the second thought was, well, who the fuck wants to see that? Like, who needs that? You don't need, this. it's a story. It has a beginning, middle and end. And I don't like what happens next for the character is irrelevant. And to an extent, uh, that isn't necessarily wrong in that like, I don't necessarily care about like the ongoing fallout um, of uh, how this character deals with the loss that she has in the first film. But what I do care about is the way that this film explores this film isn't necessarily like it is literally a sequel to the souvenir. It it takes place right after the first uh, one lets off and it's um, and it's a, a movie that is, you know, it doesn't break any kind of chronology. It is just absolutely the 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 further adventures of the main character from the first film but like the actual thing this is doing is so wildly different from the first souvenir whereas the first souvenir is a sort of story about being young and um about grief and about um this relationship and um sort of the ways that you uh 
hide reality from yourself and the way you see the things you want to see and all of that. And then this is about art and this is about like, what is the, you know, uh, therapeutic uh, uh, power of making art and what are the limits of that? What, what can that not achieve? Well, you know, what, um, what can art not fix? And um, what are the difficulties of trying to um, heal through art? And um, there's, there's so many interesting ideas going on, knowing that the first film was autobiographical to some extent. This film is about the, the act of making the first film um, in some way. Uh, I thought, I just think it's so fascinating and interesting. And I really enjoyed it, even though I don't think it's nearly as good as the first one. It's just like, you know, there's <laughs> uh, just because a movie isn't nearly as good as one of the greatest movies uh, doesn't mean it's bad. So um, Souvenir Part 2 is my number four. And then my number four first time watch was The Spook Who Sat by the Door from 1973 by Ivan Dixon. Um, ostensibly a black exploitation movie, but it's actually sort of a insurrectionist how-to um, disguised as a uh, sort of uh, only slightly veiled uh, um, tale of the Black Panther Party. It is based off of a novel um, about a when the CIA decides it needs to hit a quota and it needs to hire a black uh, man to work in it. Um, and uh, it, it hires this man and it teaches him all the things the CIA does. And what the CIA does is commit espionage and destroy nations and uh, subvert governments and, you know, just all the horrific shit the CIA does. Um, he then takes that information and then goes, all right, cool. I quit. Um, I'm going to go lead a black revolution to overthrow the government. And this movie is just a piece by piece retelling. Of, like, this is like, all right, and here are these characters. And, and this is, by the way, if, if you want to do this at home, people in the, in the movie theater, like, this is how you do it. Like, uh, if you want to learn how to kill a cop with a rifle by using streetlights as marker, then you should watch the spooker step by the door because you will learn how to do that. Okay. Um, and it isn't, and it isn't a movie that's like, well, you know, who's to say what violence is justified and what isn't? It's a movie that's like, fuck yeah, they're gonna fucking kill those pigs, <laughs> and <laughs> that's really exciting. Um, it was a low budget movie, and it was like a movie that a lot of uh, theater owners were afraid to. Uh, sort of screen and they were afraid it would lead to some kind of black revolution or whatever. So it didn't really get a lot of notice when it came out, um, but it is available on DVD um, and it is just like absolutely riveting. And it is the kind of thing that just doesn't exist in movies because movies are made to exist nicely within sort of polite society and the idea of what is and isn't politically acceptable. And even great black exploitation movies are sort of operating under the uh, assumption that um, they need to be like a little trashy and a little um, sensational and exploitative or whatever. And this is, even though it has sort of the vibe of a black exploitation movie, it really isn't that. And um, it's just so cool. It's just so great. And it just ends where it's just like, um, basically America is getting overthrown and there's just a nationwide and all of the major cities, uh, just all the police departments are being fucking dismantled. <laughs> it's great. Um, and, uh, I, I just, I had a hell of a time watching it. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's the kind of movie that shouldn't exist. And that's, 
why it's so exciting when you watch it. Man, I'll have to catch up with that one for sure. I know Gabe recommended that to me quite a while ago, and I haven't. It might have been him who assigned it to me via my uh, food bank fundraiser thing. It might have been Robert Reinecke as well. I can't remember who did, but that was how I saw it, and I'm glad I did. Yeah, I definitely will catch up with that for sure. Uh, My number four, um, well, well, Brad said Annette, but I have a different name here that's very similar, though. Anne. At 13,000 feet, and I agree with what you said earlier, Patrick, that it, it, it does kind of, it, it exists in one note, and it's pretty much like that for 70 minutes, and uh, I was with it for that entire 70-minute run of basically just living inside the mind of someone pretty unhinged and losing her sense of self. Uh, throughout this was a film i saw earlier in the year around summertime and i couldn't stop thinking about it uh like i mentioned it comes with from kazik radwanski it's listed in some places as 2019 movies so i again release dates are confounding but it played facets this year for like a week and i don't even think you can find it streaming anywhere right now uh but much like the movie pink skies ahead i mentioned this is also one of those movies I just felt deep within my brain because uh, it captures this kind of unspecified general anxiety better than anything else I've seen in a while. And it's basically about this um, preschool teacher. I believe it's preschool or it's a daycare center. Um, and she's struggling and she's just moved into a new apartment and, Clearly something happened in her past that I think the actual uh, it it was that like there's a scene probably on the cutting room floor that sort of explores and explains why maybe she's a little more manic and unhinged to some degree. Does it like pathologize her? Does it give her a diagnosis? I think I don't know if it's a straight diagnosis, but I think there's just more of like something happened to her in the past that we're really uh-huh. not made aware of in this, in, in the, in the final version of this film. I'm glad it doesn't do that. That was one of the things that I really enjoyed about this movie was that exactly. it doesn't, it doesn't explain it. And it isn't just like, well, this is the story of someone with bipolar disorder. It's, it's just, it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't feel condescending in that way. Yeah. Whereas pink skies ahead, they literally say panic disorder, <laughs> you know, um, but I like that version of that too anyway, basically, because I can relate to some degree of experiencing what these characters experience. And in this one, maybe not so much. I I don't think I've ever was ever this kind of yeah, manic in, in the way that she sort of lashes out at teachers or coworkers and things like that. I've never done that. But it's interesting how skydiving seems to be this lead character's escape from reality, or it's like a dopamine rush that keeps her going and maybe develops into some sort of an addiction. Cause she's like, I, I want to keep doing this because my day job isn't fulfilling. My love life isn't fulfilling. So I just want to keep jumping out of a plane <laughs> uh, to get that high uh, over and over again. So yeah, she, you know, she kind of has this, undiagnosed disorder that we're not sure of and we're sort of just watching her more or less 
kind of self-destruct at least when she when someone like you know um matt johnson's character he he, he meets her at a, at a co-worker's wedding you think something's gonna blossom there but you know she ends up sort of alienating him too with her erratic behavior uh so there's just really just this general question of well why does she, she get so much out of skydiving and what does that final moment mean well I don't want to give that away either. This is a movie that's really hard to track down right now. I want it to be readily available. I want everybody to know about it. I actually wrote a review because I felt strongly about it. Uh, And yeah, when this comes out officially, I'm going to recommend it all over again, but movies about mental health always sort of speak to me. And this was one of the very best I've seen in a while. So, you know, you know something this movie does that a lot of movies about uh, mental illness don't do. Um, this movie captures the sort of pain and the frustration of being mentally ill, which is what a lot of yeah. movies about mental illness do. This all this movie also just is like, you know what? Sometimes it's fucking fun to be mentally ill. Sometimes <laughs> the feeling of being out of control and manic and the feeling of just like looking around you and realizing that no one else's brain is operating the way yours is and that you like it's almost like you've unlocked some kind of cheat code to look at the world in a different way. Like that's exciting and it's a rush and uh, it's, it's not, I don't know. It's probably not uh, the healthiest uh, way to (laughs) view mental illness or whatever, but it's fucking true. And uh, I really appreciated that this movie did that. Yeah. Well, that's why that, you know, the, the the guy at the, at the wedding is probably drawn towards her because she, she seems really like, a potentially fun person to be around, even if her behavior is a little uh, offbeat and a little out there (laughs) to say the least, but you know, and it's also a movie about like not having the best social cues, especially when you're in the midst of having mental breakdown of some kind. And, you know, there isn't that typical, this is kind of a theme for 2021. There's not that big cathartic moment or she has a breakthrough at therapy or something, you know, and that's kind of what I love about it. So hopefully people will eventually see this because I think it's great. Let's uh, you guys want to take a quick break before we do our top three. Is that sure. cool? All right. Just a couple minutes and we'll be right back. All right. Number three already, huh? <laughs> Number three. Well, you, Jim, you were saying earlier that it was um, you had a film that kind of spoke to you personally. That was like this was all the things you love. And I had a movie like that this year that just felt like wow, this movie was just made with me in mind. And that is Last Night in Soho. Wow, which is the most fun. I had at a movie theater this year, just a blast. And again, it's kind of like just 
things that I love. It's it's uh, Edgar Wright uh, really doing a different sort of genre than we're used to him doing. It's uh, it's about a, uh, a young lady from the kind of a rural part of England who's moving to London for the first time to be a fashion designer. Uh, she's played by Thomason McKenzie, and she does a great work as like an audience surrogate and gives, I think, one of the best performances of the year. And uh, she is obsessed with the 60s, with the past. Uh, I fell in love with this movie when I realized that our protagonist was a Kinks fan. And I'm like, yes, exactly. And she ends up uh, moving into this house uh, owned by uh, kind of a hotel owned by uh, an old woman played by Diana Rigg. There are uh, a number of uh, actors from the 60s who uh, appear here in their older selves. And... When she goes to sleep, she is magically transformed back into the mid-60s. And this happens in one of my favorite shots of any film when we are uh, opened up into this world of uh, 1965 swinging London. And we see this giant marquee of the James Bond Thunderball movie. And... It is so good at capturing place and period and the excitement of it. And we talked about the soundtrack before, and the soundtrack just builds into this. And then it seems she has some kind of a doppelganger who, who might be her, might be somebody associated with her, that she feels that she is dreaming with the eyes of, and that's a, a character played by Anya Taylor-Joy, also in a great performance. And I'm not going to get too into where all this goes, except to say that it's fa it's fascinating to me uh, the way their various genres are mixed and there are elements that are fantasy, there are elements that are horror, and there are elements that are mystery. I will say that the mystery aspect of it is not the tightest. You could definitely criticize some script things going on, but every other aspect of this movie had me just so much of the things I love about movies that I was able to pretty much uh, forgive all of it and just really enjoy the ride. Hmm. I'm not, I, again, we can't, this is, I don't want to get into spoilers, but I wasn't crazy about the, I guess, reveal. Yeah, and the end reveal is, is, is questionable. Um, I mean, I think it, if you, I think it technically works. Like, I don't think it, it's a cheat. Yeah. I understand where that's, that's like, if somebody has a problem with the movie, that's probably going to be the problem. But for me, when a movie, you know, sucks me in so, so much, I could forgive like a little detail like that. <laughs> sure. No, I liked a lot about it. I mean, gosh, I mean, especially the, pretty much the setup for everything is pretty great. And I know that the uh, the great G Gary Sherman, uh, who with all his incredible work 
involving mirrors and mirror imagery in Poltergeist 3, he was a consultant. Uh, nice. On this. Was so. amazing. The, the yeah. way that, because again, we're, we're somewhat unsure of whether uh, Thomasina McKenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy's characters are the same or not, but they clearly have to be mirror images of each other in this pretty extraordinary dance sequence. And this is the... The, the this is why I gave this the cinematography award because the way this is handled, the way this illusion is created, because it's it's some of its uh, special effects, but a lot of it is in camera and utilizing doubles and uh, act different kinds of actors doing choreography. It's just a magical scene. Yeah, Patrick, it looks it looks great. I uh, I didn't like the story. I didn't uh, like the um, it it's at its best when it feels like a trashy giallo, and it's sort of at its worst when it's trying to play like with the moralizing and the like. I don't know. I I mean, I went into it with the proper expectations, which is every Edgar Wright movie that hasn't been co-written by Simon Pegg is worse than every. Uh, <laughs> Edgar Wright movie that was so like I just went into it knowing like all right I only kind of like Scott Pilgrim I only kind of like Baby Driver I will probably only kind of like this and I think I liked it a little more I think partly because I had a similar experience to Thomas and McKenzie when I went to college um so I went in not expecting to have an emotional investment because I certainly wasn't emotionally invested in Scott Pilgrim or Baby Driver and I actually was so I thought that was cool but yeah eventually the mystery where it goes and particularly like the way it feels kind of like scandalized by sex was kind of uh eye rolling for me a little bit um but i like i like all the like sequences like for me this is a musical like you know edgar wright made a musical uh with baby driver and he made a musical with this and for me, all of those sequences where the camera's just whipping around the club or, you know, again, with all the mirrors and everything you talked about, like the colors of it, I think it looks it looks great. Um, it's just, uh, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way in some other parts, but, uh, you know, it's, it's fine. Um, I did, I did, I did enjoy watching it. It's just, uh, I'm sure. not, I'm not, a, there's, there's some people who had a really intense negative reaction to it. And I'm not among that camp, even though. I understand when they're going for because I just on a technical level I did find it such an enjoyable movie to watch, but um, eventually the story just had me rolling my eyes. So that was that was me at least. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much with you on that. Uh, what's your number three? My number three is Dune. Um, I don't know anything about Dune. I never saw the David Lynch movie because it sounded bad. <laughs> so I'm just like, <laughs> all right, well, I'll skip that then. Um, and uh, so I got high and I went and I saw Dune and I, again, like, uh, like Green Knight, I fell asleep during part of it. <laughs> so like at a certain point they're on the run uh, and then I fell asleep and then I wake up and uh, I'm like, oh, what happened? There was, a, and I looked up on Wikipedia later. I'm like, there was a duel to the death. I don't remember this. Um, so I went, I went again and I got a little less high <laughs> and I watched it and I'm like, ah, yes. But both times what I did was I just went, did I just did the thing you want to do when you see a big special effects driven blockbuster, which I just had my jaw open and I'm like, wow, look at that big ship. Wow, look at this stuff. Oh my god, that sandworm so creepy. That the scene where the 
the ship, you know, uh, it, they're trying to save the people out of the uh, spice mining uh, ship uh, as the sandworms approaching. And you just see this massive wall of sand coming towards them. It's just overwhelming and exciting. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's a good adaptation of Dune. I don't know if where the story goes. I will continue to enjoy it. But like, um, it is just the thing I want, uh, like science fiction sort of stuff to be, which is just it is it. It takes seriously uh, its uh, sort of world building and its design and the way it films things as if they are real. It doesn't have a camera sort of like whipping around and um, it kind of properly nails itself down so you can really appreciate the scale of things. And I did appreciate that it doesn't feel like it's overreaching for some kind of depth and extra meaning, uh, which is something I, a problem I have with other uh, films by Denis Veli. Uh, how do you pronounce his last name again? I think it's Villeneuve, but Villeneuve. I Villeneuve. Yeah. Like, uh, like I think The Arrival is a bad movie because it kind of does that. <sighs> and like, we're like, where this is just like, it's it's like Star Wars, but a little more interesting. And I go, cool, that's what I want. Star Wars, but a little more interesting. Um, and it was actually like the first movie I had seen that, uh, well, that's not true because uh, Lady Bird, but um, uh, what's the lead again? Timothy Chal- Chalamet, is that his name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that guy, that guy sucks. But like when he plays characters that are just like prissy, pretty boys, you look at him and you go, yes, this is perfect casting. <laughs> and uh, I, I really liked him in this movie because uh, you kind of, uh, because he is kind of pathetic and he kind of doesn't, um, he isn't heroic um, really the way uh, he might be. Um, in a in a comparable movie, so I, I, I thought I just thought Dune was cool as hell, and I just want to hear like whooshing sounds and ominous droning, and see big ass spaceships come from the sky. And I don't know if I'll ever watch this at home because for me, this is a get high and go to a movie theater and be blown away by special effects movie. So like at a certain point, the next one will come out. I don't know if I'm even going to bother rewatching this on Blu-ray because what's the point of watching it on my like 30 inch TV? Um, Recent. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be nice. Um, and then my number three uh, first time watch was Out of the Past from 1947 by Jacques Tourneur. Just absolutely foundational classic film noir that I happened to have never seen before this year. And then I saw it and it is as unbelievably mind blowing as advertised. And it's one of those movies that has been endlessly written about um, and is capital I important in a way that I feel I don't need to describe it. It's just, you know, Jacques Turner captures a really dreamy feeling and the settings are all incredible and the way that everything, you know, the script is incredible and the way it all plays against Robert Mitchum's sort of passive face and what emotions you're allowed to project upon him uh, as you watch him go through this, you know, horrible journey and stuff like that. It's just, uh, it's just incredible. So yeah, out of the past, it's, it's a great film. It turns out <laughs> they weren't lying. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's a favorite. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there is a pretty good remake of Out of the Past uh, called Against All Odds with uh, Jeff Bridges from the '80s. Whoa! I didn't know that was a remake. That is a remake. It's not. A, it's not as good as as Out of the Past. That is, that's rightly a classic, but it's a it's a good remake. Okay. Yeah, Jeff Bridges, right? And that yeah. amazing uh, Phil Collins song. Oh, and and yeah, the Phil Collins song and James Woods is in the Kirk Douglas role. Oh, yeah, that's that's when I should watch uh, when I visit my mom, because, you know, yeah, that's that's that era of like 
of uh, mid eighties. I wouldn't say they're erotic thrillers, but you know, th- those types of thrillers were are totally her jam. Yeah. That neo-noir, that like post-body heat neo-noir. Yeah. And that's actually the really good comparison. It's kind of deserves to be on a double feature with body heat. Oh, I'll probably see it then because body yeah, heat. I think so whips. too. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. I had no idea that was a remake. I'm going to check that out. All right. Uh, uh, number three. This director has two movies on my list this year. What? As much as I love Drive My Car, this director, yes, released another film, and it's called Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. I believe it's played at the Siskel. Uh, and, yeah, I think most people would put Drive My Car higher up, but not me. I like this one even just a little bit more. Because here we have three short stories, each kind of tackling similar themes. Each, I believed, might have been definitely the third story had to have been filmed during the pandemic. And you'll know why when you see it. But mainly only have three characters per story. And And it's just sort of mines the depths behind simplicity <laughs> and, and just like it finds the layers it finds the emotional depth even if the stories themselves are all very simple one involves a, a, a surprising love triangle of sorts the next is about an attempt to sort of seduce and or blackmail a professor and the third is a meeting between two old friends possibly And this is kind of just like a no-nonsense script without any kind of puzzle to it. It's just simple stories told very well, involving intimacy in ways that feel refreshing and are never flashy. Once again, subtle gestures, very um, underplayed reactions to the situations and to the people that are on screen. But much like his other film, it's it's, it's it never tries to like sell anything too far out of the ordinary. It remains very grounded and kind of calm. It, it's like little Romare, little Hong Sang Su, um, and and also quite uh, yeah sensual and erotic at times, unexpectedly in certain moments. Again, you know, if you've seen Drive My Car, the first forty minutes does have a little bit of that going on, especially regarding the art of storytelling. But here, especially in the second story, which I thought was incredibly strong. I mean, but all of them are. That's why it's this high on my list. But yeah, the, there's just there's the story involving the professor and the older student sort of coming to terms with this story that this professor wrote and how it's making them feel very in very different ways. It's just oh, it's so compelling. Like again, you wouldn't expect tension out of somebody just reading aloud, but it's there. And each segment lasts about 40 minutes. There's a lot of casual conversation, yet there's a lot of intense emotion going on, brewing under. And none of the stories are really connected, but there is just this through line of mm, people analyzing each other 
whether if it's yeah through conversation or just the way they look at each other and everybody sort of just realizes things slowly and verbalizes how they feel about themselves and others without any judgment at all. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's, you know, characters playing out sometimes these scenarios that they've built up in their mind and it could be about passion or role playing or just these, I don't know, like, like, like unexpected epiphanies to questions that they've been pondering for quite a while. So yeah, all these stories just connect simply through the theme of human connection, whether if it's physical or mental. And again, the uh, this director doesn't do anything necessarily special with the camera, just allows us to really learn about these characters and grow with them over a 40 minute, 40 minute period. And all three are just riveting and, and, and delightful that has made me very grateful for this director uh, for both this and drive my car. I I'm, I'm excited to go back and see their other work. Raisuke Hamaguchi. So, Wheel of fortune and fantasy. If you're a fan of drive my car, you might like this one even a little bit more. Cool. I will follow that advice and seek that out. Cause after drive my car, I definitely need to see more from that director. I believe it's coming out at the end of January, at least Whoop. on Blu-ray, I believe. It's a good movie to watch on Valentine's Day, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my number two movie would not be a good movie to watch on Valentine's Day, uh, although it does have kind of a love story in it. It's it's the card counter from Paul Schrader. Wow. Yeah, I love this movie, but also I love generally what Paul Schrader brings to the table. And even though this, it it has very original and specific elements to this, I also love the themes that Schrader has been working on throughout his career. And uh, a couple of years ago, I mentioned this when we talked about uh, First Reformed, but this is yet another entry into Schrader's catalog of these incredibly damaged men who we are meant we are basically forced to identify with and see their world through very skewed eyes this started with uh, with taxi driver uh and continued with uh mishima uh and then first reformed and and now the card counter and oscar isaacs really embodies a lot of this you wonder at first why his hotel room literally is draped in white cloth from floor to ceiling and every bit of furniture mm-hmm. and it and it answers it it because you and and you get very specific details about a about gambling about being a card counter and so at first you do think this is going to be a movie about gambling, but it has other things on its mind because as uh, mentioned earlier, uh, he also was in the military and uh, served at Abu Ghraib and was somebody who tortured the prisoners there. And we do get a a very uh, intense uh, dream flashback to that, but it's really more about how this experience has 
affected him and damaged him in very deep ways and his relationships to others. I do want to mention uh, Tiffany Haddish, uh, who is generally a comedic actress, uh, is a really interesting choice here because she's coming from the comedy world. She approaches kind of the quote unquote love interest role or the supporter role with a much more interesting edge than you might expect. And they have a, 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 they have, they have a very uh, cool chemistry together. And then uh, you have this young man who's also, whose family is involved in this world and who is seeking revenge and, and looks at the Oscar Isaacs character as a vehicle for that. So, you know, the movie's doing a lot of things at once. It's dealing with uh, Schrader's career-long themes, but it also is commenting on America's place in the world and what did happen during the Bush administration and how and and beyond and how um, and how that really has an effect in more ways than one might imagine. Hmm. This is definitely the episode where I'm listening to uh, both of you talk passionately about movies that I, f- I wish I'd felt more passionately about. And I can't wait to watch them again. Cause again, well, the circumstances of which <laughs> when I first saw first reformed, I, I felt like crap. I had a horrible cold, but I was also mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, I didn't want to miss this, you know, amazing screening. Cause he was actually going to be there and, it was for the film Chicago Critics Film Festival. So I was like, I'm going to push through. I'm just going to go. And I had a hard time with that one. Uh, and this one had elements that I had a hard time with, too. But I guess it it, it is working in Paul Schrader mode and, and certainly is a showcase of what he does well. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm recommending people see it without question. I just uh, I just didn't feel as involved as I'd hoped. And how things play out. How did you feel about Taxi Driver? Well, I love that. 100%. Okay. Yeah. And obviously, yeah. that's a Scorsese movie, so it it it's, feels differently uh, than these. But just thematically, I I think that there's such a piece that it's yeah. it's interesting them all together. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, it, it, it's one of those. Yeah, when I heard like podcasters or read more things about it. I was able to like recontextualize it in my mind and kind of go, okay, I I can kind of see why this is a significant work from him. But uh, first time I saw it, I just, mm, you know, could have just been in a bad mood. Who knows? But uh, Patrick, you never saw this one, right? No, I didn't like first perform. So I didn't bother with this one. I do like light sleeper, but I really didn't like first performed. I really don't like American gigolo. So I think it's just, you know, Taxi Driver is a movie that I think works because of Martin Scorsese more than the script. So it's just not necessarily a mode that I am particularly interested in. What are you interested in? Maybe your uh, number my two? Ne- my number two is Shiva Baby, um, which is wow. I have I do it because I am particularly interested in a sort of shoestring Sundance screwball, which is mm. like. I just have a real soft spot in my heart for movies like, you know, The Day Trippers or Flirting with Disaster <laughs> or, you know, more recently, um, Mistress America or, uh, 
you know, Tangerine kind of falls into this as well. I love sort of like wild, uh, freewheeling, um, verbally driven uh, comedies of manners. Um, and so when this started, I was really into it because I just thought it was really funny and it was really specific and all of the details about the world that exists and the people who live in it. And it all of that is just so uh, really incredible. And then it sort of, Again, like I like I mentioned when I was talking about um, Rachel Sennett as my favorite actor of the year, like it starts to shift into this different mode, um, and it starts to really actually explore the character as more than just you know a point of attrition that sort of causes chaos and you know humor to happen. Um, it starts exploring you know her anxiety and the 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 expectations put upon her and stuff and. The, the way it slides all that and the way it sort of does this kind of tightrope act and um, the way it smoothly transitions from something comedic to something more almost akin to like a thriller or whatever. Um, and just every performance and every character, it was just so great. Like I just watched the whole movie and this is one of the only movies I've seen this year that there wasn't a single thing I didn't like about it. I just, I just really loved watching it. Um, I was really blown away by it. And it's, you know, it's just a perfect version of the thing it is. And um, I don't know, I don't think any of the other movies on my list are a perfect version of the thing they are. Um, so I know, I know it's not, you know, people, a lot of people didn't think of it as highly and that's fine. You know, I'm not trying to make a case that it's like secretly, you know, brilliant or deep or whatever, but it's just, it does the thing it's trying to do flawlessly. Um, and it does the, it does more than you expect from it. And that sense of surprise is the thing I was missing from almost every movie I saw this year. So Shiva Baby was really important to me. Um, and then my number two was Peeping Tom from 1960 by Michael Powell. This is a movie that I purposefully didn't watch for a long time because I just sometimes like, I like to store uh, classic films uh, like a squirrel and be like, at some point I'm going to break the glass and I'm going to watch this obviously classic movie that I'm going to love and adore. Um, and I, I'll still have that new experience. And I, I get afraid that if I watch all of the, you know, widely considered greatest, you know, horror films of all time or whatever, then I won't ever have that left. And I want to always want to preserve some of those. And then uh, my friend Gabe Powers uh, in his podcast, uh, um, Genre Grinder, we did an episode on the horror films of 1960. And that happened to be the point where I'm like, okay, let's break the glass. And I watched it and it's just as spectacular and amazing as everyone says it is. Um, and it's peeping Tom. It is, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot like out of the past. It's like, I, you don't need me to sell you on peeping Tom. It's just totally audacious. And every step of the way, you can't fucking believe where it goes. And um, how anyone involved making it thought that this would be at all palatable audience <laughs> it's like like it's one of those things that you like you know the story is always it came out the same year as psycho and psycho was a massive hit and this destroyed michael powell's career and when you don't, haven't seen the movie you might go oh isn't that shitty that's just how that's how fate worked out or whatever and then you watch it and you're like oh no this is totally a career killer like there's no way anyone would have accepted this as 1960 in a way that like psycho is totally despite it being slightly transgressive in certain ways like psycho is absolutely designed to be consumed by audiences and the audience knows how to feel and it's, and the audience doesn't feel left out twisting in the wind. And then peeping Tom 
is just about making you sit in unpleasant feelings for the entirety of it. So giving Tom fucking whips and everybody already knows it. And if you want to hear me talk more about it, you should listen to that episode of genre grinder. I did. And it was great. Thank you. I, I want to see it on the big screen. It's one that I, yeah, that'd be great. Holding out for, uh, it was, it's also a thing where it's like, you know, obviously when people talk about Brian De Palma, they talk about him as a Hitchcock (laughs) guy and about how he's constantly referencing and reworking and recontextualizing Hitchcock and everything. But like when I watch Brian De Palma movies, they never feel like Hitchcock movies to me. I can tell the references. I'm like, yeah, that's Vertigo. That's Psycho. That's, you know, Rear Window. But like they don't feel the same way as it feels watching a Hitchcock movie. Brian De Palma movies feel like Peeping Tom. Uh, And I thought that was interesting. And I think Hitchcock said the same thing when he saw De Palma movies. He's like, well, why are people calling calling them Hitchcockian? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then he he went and made Frenzy. And it's like, well... Motherfucker, you just gave up the game. <laughs> right? Oh, well. Uh, number two for me is no surprise because it's on every list. I don't know if it's the front runner or not, but um, oh, I, and I, yet I know a lot of people who have had, you know, meh reactions to it, and I understand it. But for me, um, I'm a huge Jane Campion fan. And seeing this in 4K at the Chicago Critics Film Festival was was a highlight of, of the year for me, and that is the power of the dog. It looks great, sounds great. I got really wrapped up in what was going on. Uh, kind of an exploration of masculinity again, uh, inner turmoil and tension, things brewing, uh, things explicitly said uh, at times visually. Uh, in a way that I don't know. Maybe maybe it's obvious at certain points, but there's 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 some subtle things going on. It's a slow burn, and in the end, kind of progresses into a little bit of a revenge tale of of some kind, more or less. Uh, but I don't know. It's just kind of this tragedy about a really sad mean human being played by Benedict Cumberbatch who, uh, you know, essentially at least how I interpret it, he lost the great love of his life and it's left him bitter, angry, and toxic until he finds, you know, kind of a connection of sorts with, um, you know, a young boy played by Cody Smith McPhee. And there's sort of some kind of interesting, relationship developing between the two that is more mysterious but at the same time there's hints of why this relationship is developing and you sort of learn about that even if again some people have interpreted how things play out to be a little ambiguous i don't think so (laughs) i was like i think i know exactly what happened but um it's it's not a reinvention of the Western, but this poetic reimagining of it. I just thought it was stunning to look at. I got really wrapped up in how everything plays out with these characters. The acting's great. There's no gunfights or, you know, cattle stampedes or anything. It's just a very meditative film, um, which makes that ending, you know, feel kind of sudden in a way, but not in a way that bothered me. I, I, I felt it to be very satisfying. Um, Again, far less confrontational than I expected. 
Because again, I, I feel like it's building, it's building, it's building, and it kind of doesn't give you that, which I also find refreshing at the same time. I just love what Campion does with this material. It's a classic kind of simple story of contrasting personalities and human beings with a lot of inner conflict, and it's done gracefully. So again, I can understand people not having a strong response to it. Um, one of those happens to be Sharon, who you know was like, yeah, it was good. It was good. You know, not great, but I thought it was and I loved everything about it. And I just want Jane Campion to keep making movies. So power of the dog number two for me. What did you think about the voice that Benedict Cumberbatch did? I thought it was fine. It didn't, it didn't really, I don't know, take me out of it. I mean, I guess some people have said that too. Like it's, yeah, I don't know. I, it, I, I was, it was uh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was kind of, uh, surprised by Cumberbatch's performance only because I didn't see where the movie was going and he seemed like not cast as the type he was portraying. But as we understand how uh, much we don't know about this character, then his performance, I think becomes more appropriate and more, and, and you can see what he's bringing to it. But I definitely need to see this again because I've had so many good conversations about this movie um, that, and I missed most of what was what was going on as I was watching it, and then was only able to get it in retrospect. So I really do think like a second viewing is going to be important for this. I also intended to watch it again before this because I thought it could end up on my top ten list um, if I did. Um, for me, I have to just say, like, right off the bat, it's like Benedict Cumberbatch is pretending to be Lee Marvin. He is not doing an American <laughs> accent. He is doing an impression of Lee Marvin in a way that is so bizarre and strapping that, like, it took me about 45 minutes before I could look at him as uh, as anything other than, oh, God, that guy from Sherlock is pretending to be Lee Marvin. <laughs> um, it's so weird. There might be a reason for that choice. No, I understand. I understand, but it's just, but like when you don't know that, you're just yeah. like, this movie sucks. <laughs> like, like who, like you don't, when you don't understand the reason behind the choice, it just seems like it makes you, it made me lose trust in the movie. Um, I think it's beautiful looking. I think there is a specific aspect to the ending um, that I, I would want to rewatch and sort of watch a certain character and see if I can pick it up because uh, it's just there's a thing where it's like I don't think this movie doesn't I think this movie's trying to imply something that isn't actually supported by the facts of the story and a way that I was like all right I need to see it again before I can actually make that call um I do think it's interesting and I, I agree with what Brad said about like I've had conversations with people about this movie where I'm like uh as I sort of discuss different aspects of the characters and stuff I realize more and more nuance go has went into it um, so this is a, it is a cool movie. I did enjoy it. I don't like Jane Campion, but I did like this. So, um, and I, I, I did wish, uh, I rewatched it before uh, we recorded, but I just didn't. So, um, God, he just really is pretending to be Lee Marvin. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It didn't bother me. I, but I can, I can see why it could, and it could take you out of it for a bit, yeah. but mm, everybody was great in this movie to me uh let's yeah. let's 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 do this are we at the number one spot are we yeah i think so but before we do i think we have to insert uh there's one of us who couldn't be here today 
And I think this is probably where we should insert uh, Bill Ackerman's top 40 um, as performed by Jim Laskowski. I like that idea. So I'm going to do it. Thank you, Patrick, for reminding me. All lights everywhere. And at 13,000 feet. Bad luck, banging, or loony porn. Bergman Island. The card counter. Drive my car. Freeland. The French Dispatch. Futura's 40 favorite films. The girl and the spider. I blame society. I want more. I want less. Just don't think I'll scream. Kid 90. To be together for an unknown period of time. Riders of justice searching for Mr. Rogoff. Shiva, baby, simple like silver. The souvenir part two. Yes, it's true. Wish I could sing like Nina Simone. Summer of soul, or when the revolution could not be televised. Unclenching the fist In the velvet underground We're all going to the World's Fair Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy Woodlands dark and days bewitched A history of folk horror Kayla Janice, the world Jim. Oh, thanks, man. I I put a lot of time and energy into it. I'm well, really, and, it, and he deserves it because he's such a great writer, commentator, podcaster, all around super great guy. Uh, he's here in spirit. Yeah, and uh, I especially like the flute solo. <laughs> Always great working with. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, the pressure. Okay, <laughs> here we go. How'd you Brad. get a full choir? <laughs> <laughs> that was me on the French horn. Oh my gosh, you're you are so talented. <laughs> what so is I'm- your number one film of 2021, Brad? We're already at number one. It's happening. And if- if memory serves, 
My number one is Memoria. What? Yes. And I will, because I love this so much, and I love this director so much, I'm actually going to attempt to say his name because I want everyone to know about this director, Apichapong Wirasetakul. That is probably incorrect, but he knows that people have trouble with the name. So from here on out, uh, as, as he is cool with, we will refer to him as Joe. So... He makes a very specific kind of, of contemplative film. You know, some people call it uh, slow cinema. It's known for very long, static shots. He has a number of movies that I just love, uh, including uh, Tropical Malady, Syndromes and the Century. Uh, Uncle Boonmi can repa- recall his past lives. But this might be my favorite from him. And one of the reasons is because it allows for such open interpretation that I think everyone can see this film and come away with a different conclusion, a different idea of what they just saw. And so kind of when I talk about what I felt about the film, the film doesn't enforce that. That's kind of the film and what I'm bringing to it. Uh, it Joe is a, is a director from Thailand, but here he is working in uh, Colombia and he is working with uh, Tilda Swinton. And so this is his first uh, film outside of his native country. And he has said that uh, the foreignness of working in a country that neither he nor Tilda Swinton were familiar with was part of what made the movie what it is. And basically she's playing a woman who hears a loud booming noise in her head. And in the, this is uh, particularly powerful in the theater because the soundscape of the movie is so intricate and this booming is heard in a very intense way, uh, but she's the only one who hears it. So she's trying to discover really what it means. So she uh, meets up with a sound expert, a sound engineer who tries to recreate the sound uh, in a recording. And later she meets up, uh, as I had mentioned earlier in the award part, with uh, with kind of a, a mystic man who lives uh, lives by the land, but also has the same name as the scientist and has some ideas about where this came from. So my feeling about about Memoria is that it's about human interconnectedness and the way throughout history, every soul kind of has some kind of underlying connection that can be you know, that can be expressed in a different way. In this, in this film's case, it's about this sound. It's the connection between everybody is expressed through sound. And it starts out very dark and enclosed and in man-made environments. And slowly as the film goes on, it becomes more natural. We're in the forest. We're uh, dealing with, you know, light and uh, and even some, I'll just say, uh, possibly science fiction type elements. 
and it and it works for me because it's it, first of all it's a beautiful film it 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 gives you that space they have said uh you were mentioning earlier about how you know some people might doze off a little bit because you do hold so long in silence and on particular shots but the way joe does that it's for me it's just constantly sucking me in whereas like other films of this sort might be like well what's what's the point of it here but it spoke to me and i felt there was a very strong point to it and i know that every other people will come up with different conclusions but i think it's a very special film that kind of allows for that allows for a viewer to really bring his or herself into you know what they're seeing i need to see it again <laughs> please do i'm going to and i want to well, see that on the big screen my, under, my understanding is it is coming to the Gene Siskel Film Center in April. Oh, don't. Oh. Yeah, because what I understand is that they're planning never to release this to uh, home viewing and to you know Blu-ray or 4K or anything. It's that, and they want to just keep this perpetually going back back into the theaters because they don't feel this is a movie that should be seen at home. That it should be seen in a big screen full sound experience for you know being fully immersive yeah neon did send out screeners for it to watch at home <laughs> i know i but i'm i'm totally pro watching this director's work on a big biggest screen as possible the sound design in this is remarkable i but I, I, I did feel, I did feel sleepy. I felt fell asleep. I made poor attention span possibly contributed to me not getting certain things, or at least, you know, it's also a hard movie to define. It's a hard movie to really just summarize. Well, I don't know if it worked for me or if it didn't. I honestly think it did for the most part for me, um, but I, I had to watch it again. And there has to be a you know, full disclosure because anyone coming in expecting kind of a conventional film experience, that's not what they're going to get here. It's a very specific type of film that, you know, e people are either going to be open to or not. And, and again, you know, even, even as I was involved in the film, I was still feeling like, okay, you know, this is, <laughs> There are definitely there are definitely parts where you're kind of forced to just stop and go, okay, this this shot really is being held for 10 minutes. And so you you can feel a little drowsy based on that, but then you could kind of think about well, well, why? What what is this shot trying to convey? Yeah. That's what I love about that that director. Certainly uh Patrick and I sung the praises of Uncle Boon Me when it, when it first came out, and that was unlike anything I had ever seen, I think, at that point. I saw uh, Tropical Maladies, one of my all-time favorites, and I saw Blissfully Yours for the first time this year, and that was in contention for my top 10 favorite first-time mm. watches of the year. Blissfully Yours is uh, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I need to see more. Very curious. Okay, Patrick. I, I think I might know what this could be. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, I want. I do want to. Uh, what would I do want to qualify my number one film of 2021, um, which is that Ansel Egort uh, has <laughs> several uh, credible um, accusations against him of being a sexual predator and of trying to groom teenage girls. Um, he. There are, I believe, at least half a dozen young women who have come forward and said when they were underage, he contacted them on social media and basically groomed them and, uh, you know, tried to get them to send him nudes and try to, you know, uh, have sex with them and things of this nature. Mm -hmm. Um, And when these accusations came out, uh, he kind of deleted his social media. Like he, he meant he addressed one of them and then more started to come out and he just deleted his social media and didn't say anything about it. No one involved with the production of West Side Story has said anything about it. Uh, it's shameful and it's fucking pathetic. And like the uh, the sort of way they batten down the hatches and trying to pretend like that doesn't exist and that hasn't happened is really bad. And on top of that, he's a fucking bad actor. So like, yes. uh, this was a movie that um, once all that started to come out, I go, well, I like I didn't. I wasn't particularly interested in seeing Steven Spielberg redo West Side Story anyway. I'm just not going to see that. I'm not going to support that movie. And then I, Kate, I read, I read a review that mentioned that it had a new script, which I didn't realize at the time. Um, and I caved and I went and I saw it in theaters. And that was like a thing where afterwards I'm like, oh, I feel shitty about this. I shouldn't have went and spent my money in theaters to see West Side Story. And so I do want to like put all of that up front and say like, like fuck Ansel Elgort, like in addition to just being bad in every movie he's in. Like he is just a piece of shit. Um, so that all being said, um, Robert Wise's West Side Story is a movie that uh, has some of the greatest songs ever written for a musical, that has some of the greatest dancing ever for a musical, and has a script that is just eh, whatever. It's, you know, Romeo plus Juliet, and there's a little bit of, you know, it has a little bit to say about race and, and uh, you know, um, class and uh, immigration and stuff, but like all of the truly insightful things that happen in the play of West Side Story happen in the lyrics. Like it's all Sondheim. Like when you think about like the really insightful, cutting, uh, sort of ironic uh, observations that West Side Story has, it's in songs like Officer Krupke and America. It's not in the dialogue scenes. Um, so for me, West Side Story is a movie. Uh, speaking of Robert Wise's West Side Story, West Side Story is a movie that has some of the highest highs in cinema history, you know, like the America dance and the Mambo. And uh, is that song cool? It's just, is it just called cool or cool boy? I forget. I forget the title. It's just cool. It's just cool. Like that is like the greatest musical moment in the history of cinema. Like there are so many highs, but also Natalie Wood is terrible. And, um, who plays Tony again? It's Richard Bamer. Richard Bamer is worse. <laughs> and I just don't care about the story very much. And that really hurts it in the second half once all of the good songs are kind of out of the way. Uh, and we are now stuck um, with just the story of Tony and Maria, which is yawn, whatever. And then they remade it and there's room for improvement. And it turns out the, the ultimate thing you can do is hire fucking Tony Kushner to rewrite the script. Um, so he did. And the script is great now. And But more importantly, I'll just tell you the story 
uh, you know, kind of a recurring theme here. This is perhaps why I uh, am not as interested in, I'm a lot more interested in just sort of experiencing film than I am in dissecting it and getting into detailed discussion about it and worrying about having insightful things to say about it these days. Um, So this was a perfect theatrical screening for me, which is I took an edible and I did some chores or whatever. And then I was really high when I got on the L to go to the river East and it was raining and windy. And I was listening to doo-wop music from the fifties. And I was like inside of the song, get a job. You know, it was like, it felt like it was going on for like seven minutes. And I was just like, Oh my God, this song's incredible. And I was just absolutely having the time of my life. And I get to the movie theater and I sit down and by the time the movie starts, I am peaking and just, Obviously, Steven Spielberg is a master director, but like given the permission to sort of go over the top, um, he will do so. But the thing with Steven Spielberg is uh, he doesn't always have the taste to balance the over the top style with like actually telling a proper story with characters that are interesting. Um, But Tony Kushner's script actually bridges that gap perfectly where it is sort of heightened and theatrical and the dialogue doesn't feel naturalistic in any way, but um, but it also is a lot more insightful and, and cutting and in-depth and a lot more interested in sort of the grimy details of these characters and in complicating them and in exploring this world in more detail. Um, and so it is the only, I mean, again, this is, this is me having seen this in movie theaters on the big screen, uh, like just very high and having the time of my life and just giant smile and cackling and clapping my hands throughout the whole thing. And then like by the time I was starting to come down was like when it was starting to get dark and a little sad and emotional. So it was like, just I just timed it perfectly. Emotionally, it was the perfect ride. Um, and uh, I like for me, I'm like, I think about my experience of watching this movie, which is not necessarily an objective one. And I go, OK, this is the best film that Steven Spielberg has made this century, because all these other films that he's made this century are sort of uh, they're um, sort of compromised in some way or another where it's like, yeah, there's some high points of Lincoln, but there's a lot of auto. There's a lot of biographical stuff in Lincoln that just sucks. And, uh, you know, or. You know, Catch Me If You Can is a lot of fun, but at the end of the day, it's it's kind of lightweight. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm much more a fan of uh, Steven Spielberg's career up to Saving Private Ryan and all the stuff after that I don't really care for very much. But this movie, because it is just, it gives me the excuse to go absolutely crazy and wild and energetic. And because it is, and the other thing I was afraid is like, oh God, modern musicals are terrible because modern Broadway stars have no personality. They're all like these clean-cut American Idol motherfuckers who have (laughs) auto-tuned voices in movie musicals and they're really boring and they just, you know, they sing like they're at karaoke or whatever. And then all of the ensemble, he didn't cast star movie stars. He just cast like actual people who were right for the role. So the ensemble of West Side Story is absolutely incredible. Um, Obviously, I... uh, I uh, talked about Mike Faced as Rift, but like just everyone uh, is really good. It's not everyone is as good as they are in the original. Uh, there, there is no replacing Rita Marino, even when you have a movie with Rita Marino in it. It's like <laughs> that character is not as good in this as the original. Um, 
I do like his version of America, but I like it better when it's all a dance on a rooftop as opposed to a montage. So like there are certain numbers where I, I prefer the original number better. Um, but on the other hand, I really do think Ansel Egort, um, despite being a bad actor and a piece of shit, he is better than Richard Boehmer. <laughs> and I think his, and I think Tony Kushner's Tony is much more interesting than Robert Wise's Tony, um, and a lot more flawed and compromised and, uh, probably honest about who that person would be. Um, and there's just, it, it was, it's the kind of thing where I sat down in a fucking movie theater where no one was because this movie was a huge bomb because who the fuck wants to go see West Side Story? Um, and <laughs> it was the thing that I want all Hollywood movies to be and they never, ever are anymore, which is just like, you can only make this movie with a shit ton of money. You can only make this movie with like an amazing professional crew. You can only make this movie with like the best possible uh, like screenwriter behind it and all of these like super talented dancers and singers and and it's just everything clicks in a way that this is for me like the best version of West Side Story um, that can exist. And if you are someone who considers West Side Story one of the greatest films of all time, you probably won't agree with me. So that's fine. Um, and but yeah, for me, this was the greatest uh, movie experience I had with a film that came out this year. Um, and uh, I think all of the changes they made, uh, or I should say, most of the changes they made were smart. And I think. Um, that is the movie that I will want to watch again and again, which I can't say about like the last Spielberg movie I can say about that is like bridge of spies. And then before that is like, maybe catch me if you can, like it just, his, his in the past 20 years, I've not been a big fan of Spielberg um, despite him being one of my favorite directors. So like, this was just a total surprise and a real delight. And it's a real fucking shame that right in the center of it is piece of shit. And so like, so that was my number one film of 2021. Um, and then my number time, my number one first time watch of 2021 is An Autumn Afternoon by Yasujiro Ozu, um, which I caught at the Gene Siskel on 35 millimeter. And it is in some ways a very typical Ozu movie. It is, in fact, I believe a remake of Late Spring. Um, and then he has a couple other movies that are also follow on that same theme. Um, but just again, I like. I prefer the Ozu movies that are in color. I think his use of color is so hypnotic and amazing. And especially this movie, which is constantly uh, pelting you with the colors of red, white, and blue. Um, there is throughout of Ozu's career, there is obviously this um, sort of ongoing story about a uh, Japan in transition about a post-war Japan and, and how to, which traditions do we keep and which ones do we leave behind and how do we, you know, respect those that came before us while forging your own path. And um, a lot of his movies are about a country in upheaval and uh, how one deals with that. Um, but this is much more direct and much more political and much more um, just powerful for me than any of those other ones um, in the way that uh, it is an old man's film. It is the last film that he made. It is a film about alcoholism and he was an alcoholic. It is a film about people who bet on the wrong fucking horse and like their greatest days were attached to a fucking rotten empire. And now they are stuck, um, you know, at the will of an America that wants to exact revenge on it in a lot of fucked up ways. And in a lot of ways, like post-war Japan was a really fucked up place uh, because of American occupation and stuff like that. And there's just so many layers going on on top of, or really it's like behind, 
it's not on top of, it's like you have to read between the lines of this really moving story about um, sacrifices that you make within a family in order yeah. to bring happiness to other people. And there's just so many layers going on. There's so much depth to it. And it is just an absolutely stunning film. And I, as someone who had seen several Ozu movies before, I couldn't claim that like I didn't see it coming, but it certainly uh, just for me stood above and beyond anything even he had ever done. Um, and I was just absolutely blown away. So an autumn afternoon was my favorite first time watch of the year. Cool. Thank you for sending it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, That's why I had to share it with you. Cause I'm like, this is the one. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. I do love Tokyo story, of course, but I do. Yeah. I think I like this one even more. I got to rewatch Tokyo story now that I've seen like seven or eight other ones. And I think I'll be able to go back and appreciate it uh, much more now. Yeah, I, this is a great news because I have seen a whole bunch of Ozu, but I haven't seen that one. Really? Yeah. But here's the good news. It's on my DVR. So I will likely watch it tomorrow. Excellent. Excellent. I'm excited <laughs> for you. And uh, West Side Story is number 27 on my list. I, I don't have a lot of strong feelings about the overall story, especially the original outside of holy crap amazing amazing songs amazing set pieces there's so much about it that i loved the um the opening of this version of west side story i definitely felt that kind of euphoric high that you had patrick because i was like oh this is a crane shot this is yeah this is that's not that's not a drone (laughs) you know (laughs) shooting yeah yeah I was like, oh, Spielberg, I just want, I want to hug you so much. <laughs> and I missed this feeling. And I, it did feel like, oh, cinema is back. And I, I've been waiting because people have been saying that all year. And I'm like, mm-hmm. but I, de- I definitely felt that. And yeah. And Ansel Elgort shows up and I'm like, mm-hmm. I know it shouldn't, that shouldn't completely take me out of it. It kind of did, but every, like I said earlier, everybody else in this movie is just on fire. It's for sure. It's remarkable. Um, I'm going to see it again too. I, I really, really, again, it's like, there's a lot of complaints for me, from me for saying that, you know, movie shouldn't be two and a half hours. This didn't feel like it, it overstayed. It's welcome in any way, Brad, what did you think? I know you had maybe a different response to, to this version. It's so it's so weird what I think about this because I, I as much as I want to I can't separate it from my experience of the original film because that is one of my favorite movies. Mm. So and I also I just love the material. I love West Side Story. I've seen it a page a number of times, and, and, and I've loved that experience. So you know, I, at first I was I, I kind of had more of an attitude about it, but then I was like, well, it. You know, if I'm seeing it on stage, that's that's another version too. So why not enjoy this version? And the truth is, I did enjoy it. I thought it was a really good movie. I thought what Spielberg brought to the table was was what we expect from Spielberg, which is just fucking amazing filmmaking. And so yes. the things with his camera uh, are, are quite special. 
Now, the, the Ansel Elgort thing is a problem. It's a problem morally for the reasons, Patrick, you were talking about. But on just a film level, he undercut the movie in a way that I don't think even Richard Boehmer did in the original, because here's what I couldn't buy. I couldn't buy that Tony loved Maria that much. And even if in the original, I couldn't really buy that he was the leader of the Jets, uh, it's harder for me to, to work with the this story as a whole if I, if I don't buy the premise of the star-crossed Romeo and Juliet lovers. Mm-hmm. So you know, that was a problem. There were a few, you know, as far as the, the musical numbers go, most of them were incredible. And I think like when, when music was happening in West Side Story, Spielberg was at his best. Um, and, you know, and, oh, and then the, the other thing that he actually improved was that Tony Kushner actually improved was he gave uh, the character of Chino a little more agency and, and, yeah. and more than just a thug. So I liked that. Um, so, I mean, the bottom line is I thought it was really good, but I didn't love it in the way that I love the original. I, I will say, I don't think it's necessary um, to view Tony as being madly in love with Maria, I think you can view Tony as someone who is used to getting his way um, and who is manipulative and who is flawed and um, not not necessarily a great guy. He, he perhaps isn't trying to be better and perhaps does have guilt about his past or whatever. But that, but the I don't think the script lets him off the hook for his past. I don't think the script says, he, and now he has done all the work. And therefore, I actually viewed a lot of the scenes between him and Maria as him being manipulative, and he's handsome, and she's you know smitten, and she's and I think at the end that makes it much more interesting to me that at the end she is sort of realized she. It's not just that she has lost the love of her life; it's that she has sort of. <laughs> realize something about men and about romance and um so again it's just it's a very different thing um but for me the original west side story because it doesn't necessarily work a hundred percent i was more than willing to sort of welcome that very different thing that's a that's a great point i i'm gonna watch that again as well uh this one my number one the second it ended, I said, hmm, I, th- I think this is where my mind is at in wanting movies like P- P- Petite Mama. I just think, I, I don't know if I'm wired for the Spider-Mans and the Marvels and, and even Matrix Resurrections to some degree. <laughs> I want a 70-minute fairy tale of sorts done by... Uh, Celine Sciamma, who's oh, all like doing an episode on her within the past year or so, kind of just because I loved everything. Like there was, there was never a, a choice or a moment throughout her entire filmography where I just went, oh, that didn't quite work, or mm, that scene didn't need to be there, or mm, that was too long. I, <laughs> And, you know, and I obviously when Portrait of a Lady on Fire came out, I did love it. But then the second viewing for watching it for that episode, I absolutely 100% loved it. Um, 
And this one, I think, again, the reason why it is my number one, too, is for personal reasons. I, uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, I'm going to try not to get too emotional, but, you know, obviously this story has an element that I don't want to spoil for anybody who hasn't seen it, but it does involve uh, young Nellie sort of initially we see her bidding farewell to the residents of a nursing home where her grandmother has uh, just passed away. And of course this is devastating for Nellie's mother, uh, a woman who's kind of prone to melancholy, even under normal circumstances, that's kind of hinted at, but um, Nellie and, and her mother go out to go to clean uh, the grandmother's house where, you know, she talks a little bit about growing up, including the tree fort she built out of branches. And then Nellie's mother leaves for a while, goes out into the woods and meets another young girl hanging out there. And they formed some some kind of friendship, uh, building another fort and uh, start making pancakes and having conversations and just being kids together and learning to understand one another. Again, I'm not going to spoil what goes on from from there. I think it's something you can figure out <laughs> pretty quickly. Uh, it didn't feel like a gimmicky sort of twist because, again, everything is very subtle here. But uh, what this overall story is about is about having empathy and understanding. And sometimes you're wired for that even at a young age, maybe more so. Your, your sensitivity level is on high with reactions to things like loss and grief. But uh, I felt that she told this story flawlessly uh, and, you know, uh, it goes back to that sort of small scale world of wonder. It just, yeah. It was like, it reminded me of this film called Panette and a little, little Miyazaki or, you know, some little, just that, that, that sort of feeling of. Miyazaki is an interesting Touchstone. This isn't a Miyazaki film, but it reminded yeah. me of the Studio Ghibli movie uh, when Marty was there. I was going to say that I haven't seen yeah. it yet, but I think I think it's similar uh, yeah, yeah. And, how, and how things play out. But anyway, I was I was projecting a lot of emotions onto this film. This was the summer where I kind of realized, and I and I know she won't hear this, but I think my mom could possibly be, and I don't want to say this with like a hundred percent affirmation or to take away from the amazing woman that she is, but she might be the saddest person I know. And the fact there's nothing I can do to change that is kind of what fueled my emotional response to a particular line in this movie. When uh, a character says you didn't invent my sadness. And from that point on, I was kind of a wreck. So (laughs) take that into consideration if you just kind of walk out of this and go, oh, yeah, that was cute. That was good. I enjoyed my time with with these characters in this world. For me, it was uh, a profound experience to to watch this movie and sort of wish I could have this experience to some degree. But I think she's just one of the very best filmmakers working today. And again, this is very different than Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I think it's uh, an astonishing work of art that uh, I can't wait for everyone to see when it premieres on movie, I believe in February. This is a movie. 
This is a movie that uh, it's probably one of the only movies that came out this year that just literally everyone I would say like, no, 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 you need to see Petite Mama. Um, unless unless you just literally can't watch a movie with subtitles, it's a movie I'd recommend to everyone. It's one of the few like, mostly uh, when I'm talking about like movies that are great, I'm like, oh man, this movie's amazing. It explains why the world is fucked up and life is terrible. <laughs> like, like, like the stuff I react to tends to be pretty pessimistic and pretty uh, dark and, and bleak. And if, uh, if a movie has a worldview that is too cheery or sunny, my mind just kind of rejects it. And I, I'm not as into it. And this is a movie where I'm like, I just saw a great movie and it is very warm and gentle and, and, and life affirming um, without being cloying or false. And uh, I would definitely recommend this to everybody for sure. Yeah, me too. I mean, it is a special film. And I think uh, not only is it about children and, and the two young actresses, I'm not sure exactly how old they are, but they are amazing performers for their age. Mm-hmm. But it also really takes on the point of view of a, of a child, but a child like as a person, like this is kind of like kids are people too kind of thing. It's like, how do, how do young children perceive the world? And and this movie is very wise about that. Agreed. It's yeah. <laughs> it was just surprising too, to be like, I'm going to be super passionate about this, you know, 70 minute, very subdued movie, but it, you know, it's it's interesting how all of our number ones are very different in interesting ways. Uh, yeah, we have the the parasite lighthouse thing from the last time we did this. <laughs> that's true. It makes it, like I, I more or less dismiss twenty twenty one as like being a kind of a ho hum year for cinema, but the, the fact that we all had very interesting and varying choices, and certainly a lot of the ones that both of you have mentioned are at least in my top forty. I'd say. Uh, I guess it was an okay year. It was pretty good. It wasn't bad. You know, there's, there's some diamonds in the rough. There's some gems in there if you go digging. So yeah, I feel pretty good about this episode in 2021. Now I've come to terms. (laughs) It's good. I'm still giving it a thumbs down personally, but I'm happy for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are reasons to give the year in general yeah a, th- a thumbs down i would say but uh there's some there's some interesting films throughout that sure. I'd, I'd still recommend and including you know um emma shiva baby no sudden move come on come on dune when you say emma do you mean the jane austen adaptation i is it i no it's pablo lorraine's other movie uh-huh. that I think again because of the pandemic was delayed for a couple of years because it's considered a 2019 release I think that's how they pronounce her name in the movie is Emma <laughs> but it's spelled E-M-A and it has uh, Gail Garcia, Garcia Bernal in it Another oh okay score. Yeah. oh this one okay yeah I remember this trailer Sex- yeah. sexy dancing yes lots of it it's hot. <laughs> sexy dancing for a second when i was watching titan i'm like is this that trailer i saw with the sexy dancing and i go no <laughs> this is a different this is a different movie um emma okay because you've been saying emma and i've been like dude that's from 2020 
<laughs> and also that's not that director. <laughs> um, but yeah, now I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And bad trip was hilarious. Yeah. Really love that. Benedetta. Uh, yeah. Last duel was pretty good. I was surprised. Uh, I should see last duel. Yeah. It's, it's surprising. I, I want to see house of Gucci too. I, 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 I like me some, uh, I like me some Ridley Scott trash. Yeah, I haven't gotten any Ridley Scott this year. You'll have to correct that. Yeah, I would say Last Duel is way better. <laughs> but House of Gucci has some things about it that are very entertaining. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. I actually, I the thing I, re- I most regret not seeing is the uh, Velvet Underground documentary. I was really looking forward to that. And I just never pulled the trigger on like doing a free trial to Apple Plus. So, oh, dude, it's so good. I'm really It's one of those I hope it gets a release of some kind. I, w- I wouldn't mind owning that on Blu-ray or, you know, if it had, that's the thing too, is like, I want to see tons of extras on Blu-rays again. I want to see like, where's the deleted scenes from the licorice pizza trailer <laughs> that didn't make it into the movie. Uh, Nighthouse was good. Uh, Malignant was good. Mass. Yeah. Um, just going through my list to make sure it's uh, tragedy. Macbeth sparks brothers. Coda and the Billie Eilish documentary was was definitely something I watched earlier in the year and I was like oh cool I like Billie Eilish now <laughs> I don't know if it's a you know again high art or anything but I certainly enjoyed my time with that film so yeah uh, any closing thoughts overall from, from, from either of you before we just sort of wrap things up The Father is a 2021 film is it? it is he won a lot of awards for last year. I don't know. I know, but so did Judas and the Black Messiah, but look up the release date. Mm. I was wondering about that myself because they both of those movies didn't even have uh, 2020 festivals, but yet they were eligible for last year's Oscars for some reason. Hmm. Yeah, that is weird. Oh, the father, man. Wow. That was something, too. Mm-hmm. yeah all right well what a year let's do this again in 2023 hopefully in person we'll see we're not doing it in, uh oh no, that's right we'll do it in 2023 for the films of 2022 <laughs> yeah. don't mind me well it's already been... yeah i was just gonna say as always it's it's really been a pleasure being invited on to this show Always have a blast with you guys and and thank you. And I hope the the rest of your year is fantastic. I wish the same for you, Brad. I really appreciate you coming back and uh, it's always a great conversation. I love hearing your list and everything you have to say. Uh, are you, so are you, you're on letterbox though, right? That's where people can find uh, you. I don't really do reviews though. I'm, I'm kind of a list maker on letterbox. So there's, there's not a lot of substance there, but if you want to see just, you know, random lists, uh, uh, Brad S. <laughs> yes. Brad S on letterbox and Patrick, you're pretty much just doing Are Are you going to keep up with, uh, some more episodes of tracks of the dam soon? Yeah. Yeah. I was prepping for this episode, so I put it on pause, but I'm going to do Jurassic park and me and you are going to do possessor at some point. And all right. And then I'm going to do Texas chainsaw massacre, which is, my Christmas gift 
for to bill from last year. So that's my that was my 2020 Bill Ackerman Christmas gift that I still haven't given him. So um, eventually that stuff will get done. Can't wait for that. Thank you again for joining me, uh, joining us. And the next episode, I, it, I'm debating. I, I still have to do all the uh, 1992 rewatches for the big retrospective episode that I do every year with um, Colin and Eric. We're sort of, because of our busy schedules and viewing so many things, we're sort of figuring out when we're going to record so it could be mid-February, it could be late February, it could be early March. We're, we're still finalizing that, but that's also an episode everybody seems to look forward to every year as well. Uh, but I, the next director I'm covering, oh, what a shock. It is Jane Campion going back, remaking that old episode I did with Patrick. Uh, you know, because, hey, reboots are in. Re, you know, people yeah. love these remakes and reboots and reduxes. And that old episode sucked. So it can only be it can only be improved. And was yes. probably before of the dogless. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly was. Although we did talk in the cut, and that was cool. That was that was yeah. a good that was a good talk. Yeah, for sure. But in the uh, cut yeah. uh, is gonna be playing in Chicago on 35 millimeter this year. It's, really? Uh, Chicago Film Society has released their schedule and it's all coded. And the only one that I could uncode was in the cut. Oh <laughs> so, my God. So we'll get to see that in theaters, hopefully. I think we might. I think we will. Yeah. Awesome. So that'll be the next official director episode. And in the meantime, please visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me your emails so you can possibly win two blu-rays from 2021 directors club podcast at gmail.com remember you have to send me an email before midnight on january 11th to be entered into that contest hooray and uh yeah now playing network.net for patrick's great show tracks of the dam and a bunch of other wonderful podcasts new website coming up in the near future probably around valentine's day is my goal so a lot to come. Thank you all for listening and I'll see you next year in 2023. If we're still here, <laughs> I hope we are. Hope. Thanks again. Happy New Year. Bye-bye. Yeah. Please lock me away and don't allow the day here inside where I
Yeah.